All right, there we go. Hector Roos, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Man, I'm uh, I'm I'm really excited to have you on the show, man. You know, we were talking a little bit before uh, we started recording. I mean, you're in, you know, one of the biggest um, races in in the country right now. I mean, I think all eyes are on Florida, you know, in in large part because of uh, you know DeSantis and and kind of the following uh, that he's gotten over the past, I don't know, year year and a half or so. But how, how has the campaign trail been treating you so far? How have you found, you know, that, um, you know, that campaigning has been in a, in, a, in a state like Florida, in a race like that? I mean, I'm wondering just how how the experience has been so far for you. So I've helped out a lot of campaigns over the last, um, you know, 13, 14 years. Uh, this is the first time I run for office, so I'm, I'm seeing it from a different perspective. Uh, and on, honestly, my entrance into the race was a little late. So, you know, we had to make a decision about, you know, whether we were going to run a candidate or not. And, you know, if it was a year, you know, a year ago or a year and a half ago, we probably would have made a different decision. Uh, but, you know, fast forward and you see, you know, the, um, you know, the national red flag laws were passed uh, that, uh, by Congress. And, you know, that was based on the Florida red flag laws. Uh, you see taxes, inflate, inflation crisis. And really, we have a property insurance crisis in Florida that's increasing the, you know, on top of the inflation, right? That's increasing the cost of living uh, so much for people in Florida that, you know, there's there's speculation that there's going to be a, a lot of people who are going to have lose their homes for foreclosure because they just can't afford it anymore. You know, uh, energy costs are going up. So people, you know, it's, it's north of 300% in just a couple months. So it's, uh, you know, I, I always say the example of people in uh, the, the, the chair of the Libertarian Party of Florida, you know, got a bill for like $700 in one month for his electricity bill. And he, you know, he, he doesn't live in a big house. So oh it's uh, other people are, you know, are seeing it too. I'm, I'm at least paying like another hundred bucks more than I would the year before. So it's, uh, it's, it's hitting people on different levels and different ways. And really the, the answer from um, the Republican gov, you know, led Florida government with this, with uh, governor Ron DeSantis has been just silence. Uh, they, you know, they've, promise to do things but it'll be like oh we'll do it next year or you know that sort of thing uh or i'm oh, we're serious about helping you guys but uh you know it's like you know and and seriously i mean there was a the governor at least has at this point made at least one public statement uh like a press conference announcing that he was going to have this uh like a special legislative session to resolve all these issues and you know a month later it didn't happen and we're almost you know we were, we're about nine weeks nine weeks to the election so it's not basically not going to happen, uh, and that's that's sad uh, because all, a lot of these uh, this crisis that we're living in terms of cost of living, everybody around the country is feeling it. In Florida, we're just feeling it a different way uh, because we don't really, you know, our average income is is uh, median income is less than uh, than other states, uh, so we feel it. You know, Floridians feel it a little bit more. Um, so it's just it's just sad that that's what that's what the elections turned into is this, is is this really Reminds me of uh, the old um, you know, 92 election for president, you know, where uh, where you had a Republican and a, and a Democrat, you know, uh, asking for people's votes. And then you had this independent candidate, Ross Perot, saying, you know, you're forgetting the people in the middle. You're forgetting the people who have to make a living. In, and right. it's the economy, stupid. Right. As that big uh, that big state, that big saying back then. And I think this is what this election's turned into. So exciting to see that we have we're in the right 
we're, we have a candidate. We have, I'm not the only candidate on the statewide ballot. We also have a uh, Dennis Missigoy who's running for U.S. Senate. Uh, yes. That I actually had to join him. I'm joining him on the campaign trail because he's been running for more than a year. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's we are holding line both on on foreign policy and domestic policy. Uh, and I feel like like the timing for us couldn't be better, but it also means that unfortunately the timing couldn't be worse for Floridians. Uh, and but you you feel it. You you see you see people trying to put put together what this all means. Ultimately, you know, you you have some people, you know. The governor has really been buoyed by the mainstream media. He's definitely more popular outside the, of, of Florida than he is inside of Florida, you know, because just people see different see it differently because of how the media portrays it. But realistically, the poll, polls are showing that the the governor's approval rating is slipping under uh, under fifty percent. Never a good sign, you know. We uh, we have to remember that this is a governor who uh, was elected only because he was endorsed by Donald Trump. Uh, in his first, uh, in, you know, in the first midterm years of his of his election after his uh, the, the, the 2016 election, and you know even and even now many people really don't know don't didn't know him that well. He he barely won against a a much poorer uh, candidate on the Democratic side uh, that uh, that went to you know less you know, I think he won by less than a quarter of a percent. So these elections, I mean, a libertarian does matter in these elections. These issues matter. Uh, and we're not going to let Democrats and Republicans ignore these issues. Uh, then these are bread and butter issues. And and frankly, I'm I'm disappointed in Democrats that they haven't been a stronger opposition party. But then again, it leaves the opportunity for the Libertarians to come in and and be that opposition. Um, you know, why don't they oppose uh, DeSantis because or, or the Republicans because they mostly agree with one another. They're all, they're all playing this cultural Marxism program out there and trying to gin people up and get them upset about everything else but what what's important. So uh, th- here's where we are in the late land. Yeah. And, you know, I, th- I think, um, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Dennis and I think it's I think it's really awesome. I, th- I think Florida has one of the strongest, you know, uh, libertarian tickets this time around. I mean, he, he's like you said, he's been out there campaigning for a while and, you know, you, you've hopped into the race for governor. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's really awesome to see two strong libertarian candidates both on the ticket at the same time. And it's. It's really, it's really good to hear that you guys are campaigning with one another and and getting out there. You know, it seems that, uh, at least in my mind, Florida seems like a place where a libertarian message would do really well, especially when you're looking at, you know, an incumbent governor like DeSantis. I mean, is that what you've found uh, since you've been campaigning? I mean, are voters really, you know, resonating with that libertarian message? Yeah, uh, and it's true on both sides of, of the aisle or, or perspective or ideology. You know, you had a, a Democratic primary that finished up on August 23rd. Uh, mm-hmm. The you know the former Republican governor Charlie Chris, who's now served three terms in Congress as a Democrat, uh, is uh, he wants to you know present himself as a fresh face, uh, but he defeated uh, basically the the homegrown Democrat uh, elected leader who 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 won uh, on uh, on without the support of the political establishment, this is Nikki Fried, on right. the issue of medical marijuana and you know, basically this idea of, of uh, bodily autonomy, right? You can put whatever you want in your body uh, and you don't need permission from government. Uh, and then seeing you know, all her votes that you, know, you wonder where are they going to go, but naturally that's a libertarian message. So you know, you know, we can certainly reach out to Democrats who feel that this, this idea of, of you know, 
you should decide what the, you're able to put into your own body for health reasons, particularly as well as recreational reasons. You know, anything that is uh, is an idea that we can we can promote on the on the um, on the right or towards conservatives. You know, people really are upset still that that you know school boards just recently unmasked in in March. You know, this was from a, a lot of a lot of parents were very upset and went to the school boards in, in different places in Florida. And they made a lot of noise to the extent that the FBI put out a, a formal statement calling them all domestic terrorists. So, you know, Golly. lo and behold, I mean, you know, last night, you know, everyone was called basically domestic terrorists. So uh, from Biden's uh, Biden's uh, inaugural speech on the on the lawn that made me reminded me of V for Vendetta. But this oh, is all yeah. Cult- yeah, this is <laughs> yeah. all cultural. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all cultural Marxism because nobody's paying attention to these, you know, bread and butter issues. Yeah. So we have the opportunity. I didn't um, I didn't listen to uh, Biden's speech the other night. I did see all the memes uh, from, you know, from the background he was speaking in front of. And I think the V for Vendetta comparison is is pretty accurate. Did, did he re- did he really call like, you know, what, what, what exactly did, did he say, you know, in, in, in calling people fascist? I, I, I didn't listen to the speech at all. So, in other words, he, he was being critical of people who didn't agree with him, saying that he was losing his patience with them. Uh, and the fact that, you know, that he was trying to, uh, uh, how do you say the expression is, intimidate. He was trying to intimidate people on the, who, who, who didn't, who obviously didn't agree with him, right? So right. when you, when you look at that, you know, he, he was, he basically, you know, these are, these are the steps that we're all concerned about in terms of criminalizing dissent, right? So that, you, right. you know, that people who don't agree with him are extremists and that they, if, if you express an extreme way of thinking, that there's going to be ramifications. Of course, it's 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 all uh, nebulous. It's not you know anything specific or concrete. But we've seen the direction you know that that we've seen the direction that this government has been going towards, uh, and you know unfortunately it was like that also under Trump. But Trump didn't really control his own government either. So we've been just living under this bureaucratic regime that that is trying to stifle dissent any which way. I mean, if, pr- frankly, if they can do it to a city president, they can do it to any of us. Oh, absolutely. I know the, um, I know there's been some stuff come out about uh, Charlie Crist's running mate. Um, I, I guess she was the head of the teachers union down there. And, um, you know, they pulled up some some different, you know, different tweets of hers, different clips of her talking about, um, you know, I mean, pretty much saying the same thing about the people that were going to the school board meetings and and everything like that, just, you know, demonizing them and making them out to be, I I mean, you know, essentially, you know, comparing them and and calling them domestic terrorists, you know, just for going to a school board meeting and, and voicing their concerns. I mean, that just seems that that's crazy to me. You know, how, how did, how, how did we get to a point like that where, you know, concerned parents wanting to, to express their concerns to the, school board which you know the which would be the appropriate place to do it are now being called domestic terrorists and and everything else i mean how how did we even get to a point like this it just seems so it would have seemed unthinkable years ago but now it's just it's just so commonplace you want me to tell you the truth or you want to give me a political answer i want the, i want the truth <laughs> i hope you and your and your listeners can handle the truth because the the reality is that we've we've been uh you know, not we, but the the public, right, has been going, has been 
uh, entertain this debate about school choice, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone's heard about school choice. So the, the reality is that it used to be called parental rights. So when you changed it from parental rights to school choice, then what if you didn't agree with your it, it, it suddenly changed from we are accountable to parents to if you don't like it, GTFO, right? Mm -hmm. And go, go to your school of choice. In other words, that is what happened. The people have lost the right to hold these school boards accountable because the, the, the oxygen that was sucked up in the room was directed toward if you don't like it, choose something else. So that's really where we're at. Uh, and the, the reality is that uh, that has been something that we're now you know, pushing back on because you don't have to live that way. You, you, we don't have to go. Uh, it, how do I say this? We don't have to uh, make it difficult for us to go through this entire process, find something else to uh, some other type of education for our children. If we're literally paying for the service that that we're supposed to have for our children. Right. You know, no matter what, in Florida, we have obligatory property taxes that, that are paid that pay into a fund that pays for our public education in Florida. It's enshrined in the Florida Constitution that the government is responsible for providing uh, adequate education for children. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, maybe I have to repeat that because it's not it, it's not an absurd comment to say. So what does it mean that we go from parental rights to school choice? That really the difference is is uh, is government involvement. So in this case, we went. You know, the, re the reason why parental uh, rights was the most important uh, step is because basically it meant that the last person who had the right to say anything about how the child's education happened should be the parents. When you switch to school choice, now it's government gives you these options for you to choose from. You choose it. We'll let you choose one of the one of these. These are the ones that we approve for you. So there's a model of government co-parenting there that is insidious, that that whether you're on the right or whether you're on the left, whether you're conservative, whether you're liberal, is is something that that uh, is defended by both sides against parents. So that's that's really where it comes back from. That is really the truth of 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 how we got to this point where even speaking up in school boards as a parent is is now seen as something uh, divisive when it's used to be something normal. And it, it didn't always be that way. I think in Florida, it really started changing after the 2014, 2016 elections when school choice really started becoming uh, this wedge issue uh, because right. then you're, you're focusing not on the quality of the education, not on the parent's right to choose, but on, on whether or not government would give you that choice or not, whether the, you're picking a, basically a, a politician who sides uh, with school choice groups versus uh, teachers unions, right? So right. that's it's really become a, a, a political question, not a question of values. That that's really where it comes down to. So so how would so how how would Florida return to a more you know a you know, an education model that um, <clears throat> you know is is parent centric, you know, I mean, how would it, it, you know, I mean, is it as simple as, you know, getting the, the state government to remove their influence from, you know, from this issue or, or, you know, how to, how would you, how would, how would you as governor, you know, sort of try to fix so, you know, this particular issue? It's a good question. And so the libertarian approach for, uh, for rental rights is 
the is returning decision making back to to teachers, administrators, and parents, right? They, mm-hmm. they, it takes a village, in other words, to raise a child, and that's always been the paradigm uh, in in public education. Now, now that uh, there are different types of public education, of course, you you know you, you not simply curriculum based education, which is what t- people typically think about when they look at a public school. You have mm-hmm. uh, you know the charters, public charters. You have uh, these uh, specialty uh, schools like magnet programs. Uh, and 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 there are others. The the point is that each of them are. You don't have to have. We how do I say this? Uh, so giving it back to the teachers to have the flexibility, giving it back to the parents to work with the teachers. Because right now you, we have public policy that's been put in place by Republicans in in the legislature legislature of Florida, signed by the governor, uh, that creates division between them. So mm-hmm. for example, the the famous "Don't Say Gay" bill that Democrats called it, which which was uh, formerly called the parental parental rights uh, in choice act to, to that effect. I mean, it's a misnomer, right? And it's never really about what they call it. So really, what they did with that law was, you know, the, the whole basis of it was, hey, if you're a, you know, we're not going to let you teach uh, anybody under fourth grade about the birds and the bees, about sexuality, about any of that. Period. You know, whether you have permission of parents or not, it's just not going to be allowed. Fine. Now they did that. But again, it's an intervention that literally took the choice away from parents and, and, and created a, a, a gotcha system for, for teachers. If a, if, a, if a student actually asked a question about this topic, then a, parent's not allo- a teacher's not allowed to say anything about it. Go, go ask your parent, go do this or do that. And they, accident, they accidentally do mention something away, uh, uh, in, uh, about it. They could be dismissed under that law. They can be sued. They could, a lot of things could happen under, there's a lot of redress under that under that law that creates more uh, friction in the classroom and in the teacher-parent environment. So that's really where we're, you know, really what we should be doing. We should be devolving this back into the teacher-parent relationship uh, rather than having it focused on on the politics and, and the school choice versus the teacher's union. Uh, and ultimately, the teacher's union doesn't care about teachers' rights. They just care about their political influence, right? Or, or the way a teacher independence to work with parents. They don't care. If they did this, you know, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have to argue about school choice because the teachers could be open to choose. In fact, in Florida, uh, the a former Dem- a, a Democrat 25 years ago uh, had a has a in, in, uh, signed a law into a, a, a law that that allowed parents and teachers to join together to to uh, to have a a parent uh, basically a, a trigger election. They can trigger elections to take schools independent. So if you don't like your school board, if you don't like the politics of it, if you want to empower parents and teachers in the way I just described, then shoot, they, you can you can just do it on your own. You can trigger an election. If everybody, if a majority of teachers and parents agree, school goes independent, you have your own governing board uh, and you get your own funding. I mean, that, but, but no one wants to talk about it in, in Florida because it distracts from the issue of the school politics, of, of who controls this pot of money, who can use these as wedge issues in politics? And, and I'm telling you, people are getting a, are are uh, people are really using school choice these days as a wedge issue and for for, for politicians to win narrow elections. You know, so Florida it comes up in Florida because it is it's it's demonstrated that uh, that you can win on elections with on this issue alone. Yeah. Now that now that law you you mentioned right there sounds. Super interesting. Uh, is, is that 
I mean, is that a power that's been used uh, in Florida in the past yeah. a lot, like to, uh, to trigger those elections? Uh, or? Unfortunately, not. We have a uh, maybe three or four governing uh, governing uh, board schools like that. So uh, that's that's the um, that's the problem with it that we 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 wish we could do more, we could have more, but you know if it it's it's usually teachers union reps that don't want it to happen. Uh, mm. I can tell you that I'm quietly pursuing a uh, the support of a teachers union uh, and 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 teachers and parents in particular schools where they're underrepresented, you know, um, by the by the, the school district itself. I mean, there are places where it's ideal like that, right? Where even the teachers, even, even the teachers in the teachers union, you know, not on the big scale, but on the local scale may want to participate in this kind of law. Mm, that's interesting. I really, huh. Well, I'm going to pull up the, uh, the statute right now. So a second. Okay. Yeah, no, that would be, no, that's, that's really interesting. I hadn't. I don't you know. I'd, I'd never heard of a law like that, that it seems. <laughs> It seems like a really cool power for them to have. Right. I'm just, I'm happy that the legislature hasn't actually done anything to pull back. It could have made it better and easier to use. But right. the, the, the reality is, is that we have a, uh, we, we just, the, the, the politics wants to go elsewhere. So in other words, there's, if you, uh, if you created all these new independent governing, uh, uh, you know, governing schools or independent districts, uh, then it's taken away from the the reason why charter school public charter schools should exist and and they do work on a profit model like a for profit model so you're basically taking money away from people. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, so there there is a reason why that it hasn't necessarily happened. Hmm, but it's been on the it's been on the books for like 25 years, you say? At least 25 years. Back when wow. uh, Charlie Chris was a Republican, they they actually modified it to make it even make it uh, somewhat stronger. Mm. I wonder if that's, it's probably not something he would champion now being a, you know, being a democratic nominee and, and having a teacher's union head as his right. running mate, I, I assume. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment, but the, the, I found the, the law specifically reads Florida parent empowerment law. Also Florida statute 1002. Point thirty-three, uh, and then uh, section three, but there's three schools in Florida that have been converted uh, anywhere. So that from from last time I checked, uh, people want more information. There's a guy here, here down in my community in Miami that I tried to do it for his school, and he's you know basically created a website where he um, hosts his story and how to make this happen. Uh, he failed in this in his election trigger election, uh, but mm -hmm. he uh, but he it, the documentation is pretty good, and his website is Parent Guardianship School dot com so it's uh it's, it's fairly straightforward process now uh, as for a char uh, for teachers unions they are you know it, it is an influence game at the teachers union level uh, especially at the higher level and they basically delivered a lot of votes for charlie christ over mm -hmm. his um, democrat opponent in the primary nikki freed uh and he won decidedly the 60 40. so you know if it was if it was a payback for for uh for that i can certainly understand why uh, he uh, recruited this uh, union boss, basically. Uh, and if it's, and, and frankly, um, you know, I'm in Miami myself and I'm looking at what they're doing. And uh, there's also a calculation play there that they think that they can get, you know, teachers, which there's probably about, uh, you know, good 50,000, 60,000 teachers in Miami-Dade County. 
where where the uh, Running Mates a, a union boss of, and they're pushing for a you know a a one-time uh, you know uh, tax uh, tax to pay P teachers more. It's a supplement, right? So it's mm-hmm. going to be on the ballot also in November. Uh, and they, you know, and she's, um, you know, the union boss has been pushing this. And so the idea is that, hey, you know, join the team, make some more money. And there's so many vo- teachers that participate uh, that, are, that are, you know, that are represented by that union. They feel that they can, that alone might be the the silver bullet to winning the election, being that there's been um, most of these elections, uh, statewide elections for governor um, are very tight. They're usually under 1%. One percent, you know, one percent can be any. I mean, DeSantis was elected by less than a quarter of a percent, which was about thirty-eight thousand votes. So right. you can you can see that there's a there's a big there's a lot of room there for for this kind of strategy to work out. And obviously, it's not the only school, it's not the only county that is um, that has a school board, a, a teacher union backed uh, referendum to or t- you know ta- uh, tax referendum right to uh, to sub to create a supplement payment for for teachers. Who are you know in Florida? They are underfunded, uh, for the most part. Mm. You know, you, you can always tell. Um, just put it to you this way: in, in I think uh, in, in in some of these uh, uh, countries in Europe, they uh, they they pay teachers like three times more in, in effect to what they pay in the United States. So right. in some of the southern countries, they pay you know sorry, sorry some of the uh, states in the south they pay teachers even less. So it just it goes to show you know where you know what is actually um, how how is uh, how are resources being allocated, and frankly you know I, I do believe that there is um, there's it, it it's not a problem with with school funding it's a problem of school districts allocating funding to to teacher pay I think they're purposely creating the situation too to, to keep the politics going because they you know politicians thrive on on this type of conflict that they can always kick the can down the road, promise things and, and they keep promising things to, to fix it uh, when they come back to re-election. Just one more term. I just need another four years to, to fix this issue. Mm-hmm. How many times have we heard that from a politician? <laughs> An endless amount of times. Right. They, they don't want to do the work. It's not, they're not built to do the work. Our political process doesn't reward work. No, I think you're absolutely right. If you, if you fixed all the issues you said you were going to fix, I mean, what would you run on in re-election? <laughs> you just, it, I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it really benefits people to just keep, you know, kind of keep the status quo and keep harping about the same issues they've been harping about for years and years and years. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the everyday person that, that gets the shaft, you know, like they don't, you know, they're stuck with these same choices that they get every year pretty much. And, um, you know, I mean, I think that's why so many people, you know, in, in recent years have started looking towards, you know, the Libertarian Party. I mean, the Libertarian par- Party is hotter than it's than it's ever been. And and it's because people are so fed up with the with their choices. And <clears throat> I want to I want to backtrack just just a little bit. You know, I'm curious as to, you know, how you first got involved in in politics and, and how you first got involved with the Libertarian Party? Good question. So I had been a an early Ron Paul supporter. And I mean, early does not mean 1988. I mean, I mean, 2007. Uh, okay. And I was, uh, you know, I was one of those guys who, who learned about libertarianism through his example, through his speeches, through his debates. 
You know, I was, I definitely was there live to watch the Giuliani moment between him and, uh, between uh, him and uh, Dr. Paul. Uh, I served on both campaigns uh, and, and ultimately, you know, I, you know, we, um, as a, as a movement, you know, after those campaigns, it's kind of like, well, what do you do next? Right. So I wasn't too uh, actively involved in the movement. I still did a lot of work in the, in the political scene. I helped a lot of candidates. Um, You know, I worked with a lot, with a lot of consulting firms and, and, and just developed, uh, developed, the, the tool set for how, how politics are, are put together and you know, increase what they call a operational um, you know, it, uh, understanding of, of politics. So mm-hmm. I, it wasn't really until 20, the, the 2020 election that I had to, I was looking you know, in lockdowns and, and the pervasive and tax increases. And, and I already lost faith in the Republican party that, that, they would, that they were anything, that they were a minarchist organization, that they, you know, all they want to do is tweak uh, tweak tax rates, but but they still wanted you know just they just wanted to settle for lesser increases of spending, lesser increases of taxes. Um, they they wanted to control uh, people's people's op- uh, options in any of in any parts of the market, whether it was healthcare or education. And, and frankly, uh, I I 2020 came around, lockdowns happened, and you know my distaste at that point was already. Uh, had already reached a breaking point when I know saw that you know there was no pushback, relatively little pushback regarding uh, you know this idea that you know and frankly it was a Republican administration that started the, the lockdowns right right, right. Uh, there very little very little pushback you know obviously the mandates you know that we're we're going to live live through a course of mandates the Democrats you know weren't we're not weren't opposing any of that and so frankly. Yeah, and ultimately, we you know we've seen in Florida is uh, this con- is this kind of um, decline uh, of of uh, of the political scene, the, the public debate, uh, where you know where Demo- Democrats and Republicans are walking such such hand in hand that they have nothing really to oppose each other on, and they keep playing this cultural Marxism game where you know they want to call somebody you know they want to call each other out on some kind of cultural issue, even if it's happening in another state like. You know, uh, well, without getting into an example, uh, and, and then ultimately, I, I had to make a choice. You know, I was uh, doing some uh, interviews back uh, back then on, um, on on different community uh, community platforms, and I started interviewing other libertarians for for office uh, and people representing the local parties. And I made a choice ultimately to to switch over once I started hearing about uh, you know this this uh, group within the Libertarian Party. Uh, called the Mises Caucus that was uh, basically calling calling people who are libertarians just not in the Libertarian Party. I mean, there are a lot more libertarians that just uh, that do not that are not in the Libertarian Party than there are in the Libertarian Party by by large. Right. Uh, and the they were just calling people back to hey, this this Libertarian Party thing. It's called the Libertarian Party. You know, they they were silent during COVID. They were silent in 2020. They didn't say anything about lockdowns or mandates or or push back against really this this totalitarian moment that we've lived in our lives, uh, and and ultimately I said, well, what's the plan after that? Well, we're going to run someone who is who basically is is as knowledgeable about the issues and as dynamic as a, as a Ron Paul, but like a younger Ron Paul. I said, wow, that, that sounds like a great idea. We can we can really pursue these messaging the way we want to without having to uh, deal with uh, you know the at the end of the day, these these political parties are private clubs, right? So, right. you know, you know, back in the Ron Paul days, there w- there was attempts to do something similar at, in the Republican Party that just fell flat in its face because it's a private club. So if they they can change the rules whenever they want, 
Uh, and in the Libertarian Party, you have to. It was easier just to say we're going to take over the whole shebang, and and uh, and really restore it back to its to its roots, right? So, in other in other words, these this little to no government roots, where you know government is not intervening on every aspect of our lives, uh, and you know where we do have where we where government does exist, it's not done so in a way that is intrusive, uh, or manipulative or coercive. More importantly, you know, at the you know that you have to do what they say, or at at the point of a gun, right? So right. you're entering into a relationship because with 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 the government because you want to, uh, and be and and uh, that's a, a much different uh, story than you know what it, what we've been living in under COVID and under the lockdowns for for two years. I mean, and frankly, I mean that that's my so that's my journey. You know, I joined the state board of Libertarian Party. I'm the I'm the can, chair of the candidates committee for the Libertarian Party of Florida. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, I looked around and, I was, you know, we had this great guy named Dennis Missigoy, who's running for U.S. Senate. Uh, we've had a number of other can candidates who, who are running for Congress on the, on the rumor ballot as well. And I, I'm in charge of recruiting all these candidates for local office. And, uh, and I see the biggest, biggest office that we have for governor isn't being met. And people are, have expressed opinions about it. But there's been this interesting pushback about, well, well, we don't want to offend DeSantis because maybe he'll do what we say if we ask him nicely to keep our give us back our freedoms or give keep our freedoms yeah you know protect our freedoms but if you have to beg at this point it's not it's not a uh it, it's not a, a sovereign relationship to to someone who is it, you've turned the, the relationship between a voter uh, to, and a politician around or a sovereign to a servant around right so mm -hmm. now we have to act like the servants or the slaves to and beg for our rights no our rights are inalienable that's what our that's what our faith set, our, our credos, our, our founding fathers have established. That's what's in our founding documents, uh, whether it's the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. These rights are fundamental. We don't have to beg for them. We just live them. So, that, so that's where uh, ultimately, you know, there, there was still a, quite a bit of pushback. If this was, um, if I was saying I wanted to run a year and a half ago, this conversation would, would have been way different. And but ultimately, spring forward, you know, what changed was was ultimately you start seeing the Democrat-controlled Congress, uh, you know, U.S. Congress, basically say use Florida's laws, such as red flag laws, uh, as as basically a model for their red flag laws nationally, and they're and, and they're going basically testing you know, through Republican-controlled Florida government, they're testing policies uh, that any Democrat, uh, or, you know, led policy. You know, Led government would would espouse themselves as a model for the rest of the country, and at that point, and you don't see any pushback from leadership uh, from Republican leadership. You have to say, you know, there's really nothing to lose, you know, because we're getting we're getting it we're getting the same policies that if a Democrat was if Democrats were running Florida as if we're as if we're, when Republicans are are running it. So what's the point? There's no difference, right? Uh, and and so we we really don't have anything to lose in Florida. Uh, we have everything to gain because ultimately the the purpose of of campaigns uh, is if is one of two things either win or gain influence you know that is expand the the culture uh, take the issues to task contrast recruit I mean, by and far uh, if anything's if if anything's true it's this that that campaigns or candidates are the number one recruiters for political parties no, and political movements generally it's the candidates. Not, you know, these not these issues out there. They want pe people want to see other people stand up and, and be assertive on the issues they, they 
they believe and they can prove are uh, are right. And, right. and that's really that's at the heart of this campaign. That is the first and foremost goal of the uh, of this campaign. Whether Ron DeSantis wins wins reelection or, or wins reelection or loses, uh, that's up to voters who decide to choose him uh, over over me or, or Charlie Crist, uh, you know, who's a, a former Republican wanting to run for uh, for I think it's his fifth time running for governor uh, in his third in his third political party. <laughs> Yeah, it's his fifth time running for governor. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> he, he ran. He ran like uh, five times, to- three times for Repu- as under Republican. He ran once as independent, and this is his first time as a as a Democrat. Damn, you guys just can't get rid of him. <laughs> he just keeps coming back in in a in a different colored cloak. Um, yeah. I think you said something real interesting there, though, is that um, there's 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 more libertarians outside of the party than there are in it. And I, I can't remember who I was talking to. It might have been um, it might have been Dan Berman. But, um, you know, I, we were talking about how, you know, we, we feel that libertarianism is, is the default setting for for most people. I mean, most people just kind of want the government to leave them alone and, you know, they, they can do whatever they want to do. But, you know, voters feel they feel trapped in, in the duopoly like they, you know, they feel like they have to vote. Democrat or Republican, you know, for their vote to, to matter. That's what you hear a lot of people say. Um, you know, they, they, they don't want to throw their vote away on a, on an independent or a third party candidate, but, you know, I, I think just over the past couple of years, more people have kind of thrown that logic to the side, realizing that, you know, the two parties that they've been propping up this whole time just are not representing their best interest whatsoever. And, and like you've, you've been saying, you know, not, not only are they not representing the voters interests, they're actually coordinating with one another to enact policies that, that don't really do anything except oppress voters. And I, you know, I think it's, I, and you're absolutely right. Candidates and campaigns are the biggest recruiter uh, for parties. And, you know, I, I think that that's something that it's, it's crucial for libertarian, the libertarian party and libertarian candidates to understand. It's like you're the base of voters that you have to work with is, is way bigger than, than anyone would realize, I think. Um, and it's just, um, I don't know. And, and that's why I think it's important to run like really strong candidates. Like I said before, you know, I think Florida has, you know, a really awesome libertarian ticket this time around. I think, I think New York has a really good, uh, libertarian ticket this time around. Um, and you, you mentioned that, that you are in charge of, um, recruiting libertarian candidates for office there in Florida, right? Yes. So, so what, what does that process, uh, in, entail? How do you go about doing that exactly? I'm, I'm really interested. So the, the first thing is, is, um, I'll, I'll point out to you this way. The reason why politics is, is generally so messed up in America is you know, people said it this way. Uh, basically, we, we have an older uh, uh, group of, of an aging out leadership. You know, the average age in, in Congress, for instance, is, is well over 70 years old. You know, oh, yeah. uh, the, the oldest member in co- of the Senate is Chuck Grassley. He's 92 or maybe 93 at this point. Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi's in her upper 70s. The, pres- the current president of the United States is, is, is over the, is what, 82, 83? Something um, I'm not sure. I, th- I think he's a he's around 80. I'm not exactly sure where at, but he's a, he's around there. Right. So he's uh, he's 79, actually. 
okay. looks a lot old. So uh, the point the, the point is that so you have you have uh, these people who are gener- who are holding back other generations from serving in public life, and they just kind of h- held this monopoly on political control. Uh, to a certain extent, it's been said that Gen X so was has completely been skipped over from from political participation. So now you know you know Florida looks like they're going to elect their the first millennial member of Congress who's going to be a Democrat out of the Orlando area. I mean, that's, you know, for the first time and, and no Gen Xers, there are very few little uh, Gen Xers that got, uh, they got, uh, that got that chance to do so. So uh, this is true as you go down in government uh, in level layer, levels of government where there's, it's less competitive. Uh, if it's like, a, uh, if you're outside of an urban area where there's a lot and competitive means like there's, who wants to really invest a lot of time and effort in a in a government that doesn't control a lot of things like big budget, uh, big uh, taxi districts or a port or an airport or you have something big like a big population. So beyond outside of those areas, it's very it's not competitive at all. I mean, it's basically no one wants to get in there. You have the same people with the same. There's very little turnover. People often get elected without any any opposition. So there's no election whatsoever. Some people will just get elected once and. They never get have to face another election for ten or twenty years, and the average age is over is over seventy. So, you know, recruiting candidates for the Libertarian Party really is uh, at the very at minimal. You know, are you uh, are do you are you good moral character? Do you understand what a libertarian is? Uh, and do you um, and do you live in any of these areas? And if you don't, well, would you like to move? You know. Uh, the, the reality comes down to is, you know, our elected, we have a lot of, we have elected officials in nonpartisan seats from special taxing districts to, to city commissions of sizable cities. We even have a mayor, <clears throat> but there, but that's still a, you know, we just need to keep building on these numbers uh, and building on these numbers is, is really the task of the committees themselves. You create a, a list of people who are even interested in running for office uh, or supporting other candidates and you just start creating a pipeline. Uh, and you know we have 400 municipalities in the state of Florida, 67 counties. That means 67 school boards. You know there's some school boards that you can get elected with like 500 votes. Kid you not. And there's some that you you do need like 10,000 votes. And right. a lot of them are like that. And some of them are countywide where you need you know 200,000 votes. So it, it's it's a different game for each situation. But there's not as the the smaller the race, the less competitive it is. And that's really where our resources and our talent can be can be best best focused but again you know election like governor or u.s senate or something statewide is uh is uh is a is a megaphone for the movement so you can't put down the megaphone either you know you have to you have to do what you can um you know uh i would also be remiss is that there's different strategies for for running for uh, running for big elections mm-hmm. you know uh one is you know we do uh, i tend to support weaponizing the the what's called the spoiler effect uh, the spoiler effect basically means that if you're in a, you're in a state where it's uh, the elections are close, statewide elections are close, then you can have an, an oversized impact on the election uh, by basically receiving more votes than the spread between the the, the two the, the other the top two uh, candidates. So someone who's done this a number of times, who's been called a spoiler, uh, is um, is in, is in Georgia, and I'm trying to remember his name right now. It just escaped my mind. But the, uh, but in Georgia, with the Libertarian candidate there has run for U.S. Senate. Now he's running for for Florida governor. I'm sorry, for Georgia governor. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, at the end of the day, we, we have to feel that um, that we have a seat at the table because we can say, 
you're not paying attention to this issue. This is why you're losing this election, not because we're simply on the ballot, because people are expressing their preference, right? So right. that that's really what comes down to it. Now, I, I do want to yeah. mention a quote by Alexander Hamilton, which you know is is centered to why we why, uh, well, which is centered uh, to this. Ex- well, let me double back real quick. Mm-hmm. That this is what it, the effect of recruiting candidates and 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 what the strategies are for the Libertarian Party as a minor as a as a as a the third party that that's that's sitting behind the the big two, uh, which is you know we are trying to espouse the, the the issue that we're giving people a choice. We're giving people an ability to choose their preference, to choose their conscience, not vote against their own conscience. So in other words, you know we are trying to highlight to people that standing opposition means that we are giving people a choice. Otherwise, they're left with with just the biggest lie in politics, which is that good people, good people, good character, <clears throat> have to, uh, they, they are obligated somehow to voting for the lesser evil. Mm. Now, that you want to talk about lawlessness? Imagine everybody voting against mo- their basic morals, morality, and conscience constantly and you're going to see moral decay in the country. And guess what? We're there, right? Oh, That's yeah. what's happened. So now to the Alexander Hamilton quote. So founding father Alexander Hamilton explained this even explained this way back then too as a, as a principle. His quote is: "If we have an enemy at the head of government, let it be one whom we can oppose and for whom we are not responsible." I'll read it again. If we must have an enemy at the head of government. Let it be one whom we can oppose and for whom we are not responsible. Mm. So at the end of the day, we we don't, you know, if you want to support, you know, issues and you feel like Republicans are are, like Florida example, right? We we have Republican controlled uh, legislator. We have a Republican as governor. And yet they act like Democrats. And it's harder to stand up to these to these uh, statists, for lack of a better word, uh, because. Uh, because then you know you're you're dealing with somebody people feel like they can't oppose them because oh at least they're talking the talking points are good, right? But that's right. making us responsible for their conduct, and that is something that we have to get away from. It's far better to have instead of defensive voting, defensive. So people would characterize defensive voting as well voting for lesser two evils, or the other way, which is vote your conscience. Let if if the if the worst character uh, gets in, but you have a strong check on them from like a legislature, then that's a preferred situation than having a unilateral, unilateral, uh, you know, uh, government where every, everybody's on the same, supposedly on the same team, but you're getting an even worse outcome. Basically, what we've had for for too long in in, in Florida is Republicans have been governing, uh, and they put people to sleep. Right. They, they put them into this false sense of security that, you know, they'll they'll defend their, their freedoms. They'll keep their taxes low. They'll they'll keep their cost of living down. And and and, and rather instead, they've been governing like we're going to increase the increase taxes have been increased four years uh, for sorry, in four years. They've increased four times. Uh, they've uh, they have ob- obviously restricted gun, uh, gun ownership or Second Amendment uh, or right to right to self-defense both in terms of by raising the age of, of to purchase a firearm to 21 uh, by installing red flag laws, which is simply another form of, of asset civil, of civil asset forfeiture. Um, of course, they've expanded civil asset forfeiture, which if you don't know what that means, it means that 
basically that they, you can, a, a police department, a sheriff's agency can seize your property, any of your property, with the notion that it is involved in a crime and they don't, you don't, and you have to go to court in order to ask for it back. Same way with, with if they, if they seize your, your firearms, because someone accused you uh, to the police department who then goes to a judge to just get a, a warrant that says, we want to see, I gave you permission to see somebody's guns. So it's all based on you are presumed guilty before and you have to prove your innocence. When it's traditionally American jurisprudence, that is a legal system, is based on you are, you are innocent and have to be proven guilty. And so that is, it's, we've created a system in, in a legal system or that's being forced on us as a uh, arbitrary and capricious uh, manner of, of politically driven law. So, you know, that means that none of our liberties are safe. None of our, uh, of our property is, is secured. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've even seen, uh, you know, the Supreme Court, which is just basically a group of, of politically influential attorneys, uh, argue right. that uh, and, and try to legalize the notion of, uh, of, of this idea that government can take your property away if it has something to do with the public good, whatever public good is, again, arbitrary and capricious. So uh, when it gets down to it, you know, we have to, you know, this, this idea of, of uh, us taking responsibility as individuals for our own lives is the most important part of this process. You know, the fir- it first starts by just being free to, you know, express your preference. Because if you can't, if you're not free to express your preference, we're in a much different, that's a much different problem than, uh, than um, uh, you know, obviously culturally speaking, that's a different problem uh, the, because then there's no pressure whatsoever on politicians to not not do the status thing, to to not raise the taxes. To there's there's no pressure on them whatsoever. Then, uh, and this so this this is the the goal ultimately of what these kind of campaigns. This is you know the best example of a spoiler had always has always been this um uh this the the '92 election for president with Ross Perot, mm-hmm. you know where he said you know where he you know he got what almost 30 percent of the vote uh, that year and. You know, he could he had a shot, of course, but the, the point is that he pivoted, he he expressed issues that were being ignored by both parties, and it caused enough people in the election. Even if it, it and uh, clearly he got more votes than the difference between the two candidates, uh, and the sitting uh, president lost re-election. And maybe you know after, you know Ross Perot's famous quote in the election was, "It's the economy, stupid, right?" <laughs> and, and, right. Yeah, similarly in Florida, I mean we have a political establishment that's so arrogant and, and just comfortable. That you know they've raised taxes, they've let people uh, you know be concerned about the future of their of, of home ownership. They've you know they basically raised taxes, were allowed cost of living to increase so much that people mm-hmm. you know are wondering whether they're going to be able to afford to stay in their homes. So you know you you create that much uncertainty in people's lives. There, sh- there should be a reaction, and, right. and I think um, and I think the problem with DeSantis these days is is that he's expended so much political capital to get to where he's at that. Um, He's he has no he has a really he his only his only tool right now is really more cultural Marxism. Let's say it what it is. You know when you when you're attacking teachers, you're attacking this, and you're criticizing you know something things that are happening in other states, uh, or you're spending time criticizing D.C. when you're not really doing anything, just opening your mouth and saying something, or and you're promising things that won't happen until maybe a year or two years later. Uh, you know ultimately, and you're not you know fulfilling your campaign promises. You know, ultimately, people are going. Uh, people are going to realize that. So, I, I think if DeSantis loses, it's really going to be a check of, of him losing, not because, 
you know, because people just don't see any, any don't see any hope uh, in DeSantis turning things around. Um, and, and frankly, they, they basically lost confidence in him if they had it in the first place. This oh, yeah. guy, I mean, DeSantis is the guy who locked down, was one of the first lockdown governors in, 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 in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And he, uh, he still somehow gets all the credit for, you know, you know, keeping schools open and, you know, I mean, he's, he's really branded himself in the, you know, the mainstream media has, has branded him like the super pro freedom governor. And I mean, I think just, you know, over the course of this past, you know, almost hour we're approaching on, I, I think you've made the case that he's not, um, and, and, and we are approaching on an hour. I don't want to keep you too, too much longer, but I did have one more thing I wanted to ask you about, and we've kind of touched on it a little bit here and there, but you know, I, I think it's important. So I wanted to really emphasize it here, here towards the end. Um, and, and it's prominent on your website, the, uh, the, the Florida model red flag law, um, you know, on your website, you listed as a, you know, big reason as to why you're running. And, and you did talk about it a little there just a minute ago, but if, if you could just, you know, you know, break down exactly what, what that red flag law is and, and how it's been used, uh, in, in Florida so far. Sure. So, and, uh, so Florida, so let me start with this. Florida is part of the, you know, is one of these countries states in the south the south uh everyone's heard of uh, if you're in the south you've heard of the of the term jim crow mm-hmm. uh, jim crow is a series of of um of post-reconstruction laws uh that were designed to basically keep the political establishment in power to uh, uh demotivate you know northerners from moving to the south to encourage uh free black slaves and descendants of black slaves from from remaining in the state uh, by taking away, you know, ballot access, taking away the right of, of gun ownership, of self-defense. You know, so this is, in, in Florida particularly, actually, the, the modern civil rights movement that may, you know, people have heard about, you know, in the 50s and 60s, actually did not formally end uh, until, the, until the 1980s. And so you, you still have a lot of people in politics in Florida that are, um, that belong to the generation where they remember how Jim Crow was in Florida. Uh, and you, and so, and what does that, you know, what does that mean? That means actually, you know, when you have, um, you, there was control of rep- political representation in Florida, that manner, you know, even, even more recently, there was a Supreme Court decision that showed that there was a state and corporate uh, uh, policies to, to essentially segregate communities uh, through something called redlining. Uh, and it, so it's something just saying that this is something that's actually, con- it's something that's, um, not so old in Florida that you can be it can be dismissive. It actually, it's still part of the landscape. So when you talk about any type of gun control laws, particularly in a state like Florida, you actually have to like you, you have to go back and um, and remember what this whole history of of, of you know this, the civil rights issues have been. Uh, by the way, when when the Nazis saw in the 30s saw what Jim Crow was, it they went. Yeah, they went holy cow, and they, you know, they they're the ones that said, but you know, we don't even go that far. But you know, that, that's a that's what you can that's how far you can go with that. That's crazy, you know. That let's just say that's to put it in perspective. I mean, it's colorful, but that's really what it comes down to. So back to red flag laws. Red flag laws specifically are a form of gun confiscation laws. So, mm-hmm. but the, uh, so uh, let me explain what it is. So it's specifically, it is uh, it it. it it targets. It's supposed to target people with some type of mental disorder, or some or some type of um, 
uh, uh, accusation that someone basically unstable doesn't necessarily mean mental illness could just be mad right and and uh, and out of control raging or whatever right so it's typically the typical example is a, uh, a significant other is scared uh, that they get into a fight with their other significant other uh, they own a lot of guns the the person goes to police reports that they're fearful for their life and they can't go back home because of all these guns that are in the house. Uh, the police goes to a, just based on that accusation alone, uh, either that the person is mentally disturbed, which could be temporary. Uh, they could go to a judge, get a, a warrant to seize the firearms in the house uh, and no due process. There's no jury. There's, there's no notice even to, to the person who, uh, to who's going to be who's the target of this red flag. Uh, to present themselves and defend themselves in court. So in, in other words, uh, the police is just not given the order, you know, uh, arbitrarily gone and they go to the house, seize the firearms, what, however that goes down, you know, there's a knock on the door. Like if there's any other process of a, of a, uh, of a warrant and then which could escalate or might, or might not, but either way, the, the property seized and then the person has to actually go to the court and argue for them to be returned. His property, his or her property be returned. So in other words, this is a uh, basically an administrative process that has no due process. But that's again, it's uh, arbitrary and capricious. It could be applied that way. In fact, there's some counties that's applied several hundred times uh, in a uh, by one single judge can can basically write hundreds of these orders in, in a in a year, and they have in certain counties in Florida. So basically, sheriffs like the, there are some sheriffs in, in, that literally like do a score. They keep a scorecard of how many of these they've. They've been able to, Republican sheriffs, by the way, how many of them they've been able to serve and process. So how many guns they've seen, basically. God. So they, they, it's, you know, and they're, they think that's something, you know, the, the whole machoism about, uh, about law enforcement there for you. So let's go back to how this even passed in Florida. So, so in 2017, uh, there was a, a, we're going back five years. In 2017, I'm, I'm sitting there, uh, you know, working in a uh, working in a in a, with a, po a political campaign in the area uh, of a where when a, a a mass shooting event happens at a high school in Parkland, Florida, in Broward County, South Florida, mm -hmm. uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Uh, this is the guy who's current. The, the shooter is, is Nicholas Cruz. He's currently being uh, in trial right now for the murder of 30, 30 plus people, uh, students and and adults. And uh, ultimately, the it happened at, right at the start of it was it was a Valentine's Day massacre. It, it happened at, right at the start of a of a legislative session, uh, and the, the Democrats and the national media did all these town halls. They they did all this all, all this pushing and advocacy. Ultimately, some a couple billionaires dropped maybe like a hundred million dollars on on influencing policy in Florida. There was so much public pressure on them that the the legislative leadership said little quote. We just held our hands together, we closed our eyes, and we jumped for it. So, you know, uh, just they completely caved into the pressure and the money, uh, and you know, and they passed this draconian bill called, you know, uh, you know, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Act. They just straight up called it like that, and it, which which raised the the the, uh, the minimum age to purchase a firearm from 18 to 21. So you could have served your country; it doesn't matter. You can't buy a firearm. It, it increased waiting uh, waiting lists for uh, for gun purchases, waiting times. Uh, it uh, and of course it, it instituted a red flag law. Uh, I think it it may I think Florida became like the, only the second or maybe the first actually 
a, a Republican-led state in the in the country to actually institute its own red flag law. And it was just so expansive, no checks, no balances on it. That that's why it was approved by uh, by the by Congress in that you know almost verbatim. Now the reality is is that uh, is that my, the how do I say this? The Republican leadership uh, in uh, so went so hardcore for it. You are not allowed to oppose it, and you are not allowed to oppose it in subsequent legislative years with even new members of the, of, of the legislature, because it was it was so such a leadership priority that, in other words, we, they put politics over principle in such a manner that they lost both, right? Mm. In other, so they were never able to actually execute any other politics, any other reforms. They were locked in on this on gun control, a hundred percent. Uh, and they could uh, even that year and subsequent years, it, it's um, it's basically demoralized and undermined the ability of even of even small uh, limited government proponents to to do anything to do anything in, in in Florida government. So the only minor change I've seen anything happen is really um, direct primary care was passed. Whoopee! You know that that was already work that was already happening right. uh, for years because it takes sometimes it just takes like six years to pass anything that comprehend that important. Uh, and all it was was uh, it, it, which redefined. Um, all it did was change a word that says that it, it uh, uh, redefined direct primary care as not insurance. Does it? It's not insurance, so it can't be regulated as insurance. But okay, so back to but back to the main point is is that Republicans lost their way in such a hard way in Florida that you know in comes in comes Ron DeSantis. He gets elected in in, uh, in twenty eighteen. By the president, Ron Sanders is just picked. Uh, you know, he's randomly picked out of obscurity by some political establishment. A uh, hack, given presented as, with a ribbon uh, on a in, on a in a bow, you know, to, as a gift to uh, to, uh, uh, to to Donald Trump. And without much further ado, much more screening, he's he's uh, he's pushed to the top of of the prime. You know, of uh, he's pushed into the governor's mansion, basically. So mm-hmm. not on any issues, not on any freedom issues. No, nobody really cared about DeSantis, honestly, uh, because everyone knew, knew he was relying on Trump. And then COVID happens. COVID happens. Again, the Republicans are so weak and, uh, and uh, in terms of, of standing for what's right because they're you know, demoralized or undermined. Uh, and, you know, and frankly, it's a go along to get along system at that point um, that, you know, Ron DeSantis decides he's going to be one of the first governors to lock down everything. Start accepting federal dollars from the moment they, they come in, because you know what? Someone told him that if he declared the state of emergency, he would be super governor. Basically, uh, you know, he would assume dictatorial powers in government over government uh, in a manner that no governor in the history of Florida would have uh, to spend somewhere at waywards of what 40, 50 billion dollars that he that he himself would have unilateral control over. So. Mm. He, he did that for 475 days and he built himself a system that no longer replied on Donald Trump, but now had basically, uh, basically uh, he built up a patronage system where he was now empowering, hit, empowering allies and buying off basically support uh, for his agenda, for his po- political, uh, developing political machine that he didn't have before because he was relying on Trump again uh, to, to establish himself. And he did so and he's established that, of course, nationally as a result uh, he went along with it he bought into it hook line sinker the the he was one of the first governors to do it and and real, real, realistically the only thing he's ever been criticized by the mainstream media or by democrats 
is on some of the cultural war issues, the cultural Marxism issues, uh, whether it's um, you know him complaining about uh, you know sex ed being taught or sexuality being taught in schools, or don't get say gay bill, or or um, uh, maybe the uh, uh, the restriction uh, somewhat on the restriction of um, of free speech and and the right to assembly. He was lightly yeah, criticized yeah. on. He passed a bill like that, and, and he signed that bill, in, like I think at the beginning, the end of the spring. Uh, and you know what? The, the reality was that Democrats didn't mind because they liked that kind of stuff. Anyway, you know who the first people who were charged in that law was? Who's that? Trump supporters. <laughs> first people, first people who were charged was Trump supporters in the Space Coast in Volusia County. You know, in, inside wow. of, the, of NASA. They they were um, they they charged them under that. Uh, were basically. Uh, for putting, you know, uh, for standing, you know, for uh, pro- doing a counter protest and being obnoxious and putting their car, leaving their car in the way of, of traffic, uh, they were the first ones charged uh, with it. Uh, and you wow. know, that's that's really what it comes down to. It's it's never in, in, the intention of all this kind of public policy is never intended to affect the people they they say it's going to target. It's always going to target the opposite way. I mean, that's the moral hazard of it. So when I say that. Um, you know, of course, uh, ultimately, DeSantis' um, state state of emergency for 475 days empowered all local governments to basically do whatever they wanted to with COVID. So guess what? Uh, the, the public hospital agencies, a, a lot of the left-leaning or Democrat-run uh, counties and municipalities, they enacted the, everything from mask mandates to vaccine mandates uh, to uh, noise, uh, to what is it, curfews, and and they continue lockdowns for uh, through through the to the 2020 election. I'm in Miami, so I I saw there the, were still curfews and uh, curfews and and mandates of that form all the way through through the election of 2020. Um, but ultimately, even even the mask mandates uh, weren't reversed in schools until um until recently and the, the vaccine mandates are still in place in public agency hospitals now really yeah so in other words if you want to get treated by if you want to get treated in a public hospital setting you need you're going to need to either ask for some kind of religious exemption or you're going or you need to get uh you, you need to get jab you know you wow. need to get the the ouchie so when i it's not like it's not like the standards was you know following you know, Fauci's order. So he was just doing everything but, you know, the ouchie. So I call him Fauci without the ouchie. You know, be, because really what he, what he said was, what he really said was, I don't disagree. I don't agree with, with, the, with the recommendation of the, of the CDC and the FDA uh, because, you know, I see these other scientists who are telling me something different. But, you know, so I'm, I can't justify the lockdowns on my, on my own. So he just let other people do make the decision instead. Uh, wow. and, and for the most part, you know, he had the only reason why after 475 days, it was only a week or two later after that, that California reopened. And if California reopened and we're still in a state of emergency in Florida, people are going to start asking questions. So that's really what it came down to. And, and then as a Libertarian Party, uh, as, an op- as, a, as a member of the board of the Libertarian Party of Florida, we were still we were starting to make a lot of noise about that, that we're still, you know, New York is reopening. What the, what's wrong with you? Yeah. yeah, that's that's crazy. I mean, everyone looks at, you know, New York and California as being states that were just so, you know, locked down and, you know, all, all sorts of mandates and everything. But Florida actually kept that stuff going longer than longer than they did. We created two types of Florida's, the ones that had had it and the ones that didn't. So you were either free wow. in some counties and free not free in others. 
And even now, you know, the, the reason why parents were so pissed is because after two years, their kids were still being masked in school. You know, and and obviously I, I consider that a form of child abuse. You know, it's it's almost ritualistic. Right. You know, you have to do this or no reason other than uh, other than we say so. You know, that's that's a religion, you know, when you don't have a choice. So the and of course, it was only last November again that that the FBI was calling these parents, pissed off parents asking for mask mandates to be lifted, uh, among other issues, um, domestic terrorists. Right. Yeah. God, man. Uh, ultimately, what? you know, it's a it's a situation where you you come in and you you look at the you look around you, and you wonder this stuff isn't going away anytime soon, and you still have people resisting the fact that a libertarian needs to needs to run these elections just to be a you know to be a political party. You run candidates. I mean, it's just very simple. But you know, when it come over the summer, you know, things things get more heated, uh, things get more challenging. Uh, you have um, again, we're, we're looking at the national red flag law. We're seeing all the the charge, the, the, the cultural Marxism that's being expressed out there in regards to, uh, you know, people wanting to focus on these issues as opposed to real issues that matter to real people. Uh, and, and ultimately, there is, there, you know, they're stuck. They're, whether you're Ron Sanders or Charlie Chris, you are kind of stuck in this. This is what I'm, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, and I'm not gonna, I'm not going to change now because I can't do anything about it, because if I try to, I'm going to fail. So. Why would I want to be uh, exposed like that? You know, rather, rather he'll just try and play the hand he's, he's got. And libertarians are going to play the, the hand they got, which is in the greatest time of, of upheaval in our post-lockdowns. Uh, the, this is the first election. This is the first election post-lockdowns we're, we're actually confronting. You know, so of course, it's it, this should this idea of freedom uh, should be. Uh, should be addressed, and the, the the campaign slogan for for this campaign, for the chairman running for governor of Florida, is freedom without compromise. Oh, that's awesome! I love that, man. I think it's um, <clears throat> I think it's so important that uh, that that libertarians continue to run in these big races and challenge the status quo and and, and give voters another option, you know, an option that's really going to stand up for their, their liberties and their freedom. And, um, I, I do want to kind of wrap up here. I didn't mean to keep you for as long as I did, but I've just been so, I've been so fascinated with, with, you know, your, your answers and what you've been talking about, because it's so, it's so different than like the media coverage of DeSantis. You know what I mean? It's right. I, like, I, I, there's so much stuff that I didn't know that, that you've been talking about. I, I've been taking notes and, and everything well, just blown away at how, you know, the, the contrast, um, the coverage of, of DeSantis's Florida. And then, you know, like what, what's actually been happening there on the ground. It kind of blown me away. It, it's so, it's so, I mean, I've met DeSantis a number of times in person, I was shaking his hand, I've taken photos with him. You know, those photos may, may or may not come out one day. Uh, but the, the reality comes down to is that, uh, you know, for, one of the first times I met him was in person. I was, um, he was a proponent of the fair tax in Congress. So he was one of the spokespersons for it. So, uh, and that, that requires abolishing the IRS, right? So the Sanders went from, oh, I'm going to abolish the IRS to, I won't even say anything about the FBI, you know, raiding Trump's place and political prosecutions. I will, I'll just remain silent. I won't even call for another agency to be abolished anymore. He just that hasn't, he's, his what he's done is and he wasn't basically a he wasn't much of a constitutionalist in congress either right so it's just a you know he's played the game 
and 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 frankly, when you when you think about how he raised up the ranks and he, come, he came into his political career of his, uh, having basically a, a accepted the uh, the deployment to be the the JAG officer who was in charge of of, of basically the 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 torture camp over at in uh, in Guantanamo uh, for 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 years. He, he's that that's really where he's coming from. He he's he basically you know he will make the pact with the devil if he needs to. I I don't see anything else. I don't see anything that that says otherwise. Every all points indicate to that. That that's how kind of uh, unscrupulous he is with with his with his positions with his political positions. So and now he's running against the chameleon Charlie Crist, who was the <laughs> former governor. So now like what like you know what's what's really there to lose for a libertarian to sit out there and contrast these issues. Uh, but more importantly, I mean, I do want to wrap. I do want to just quickly give a quick a rundown on on issues that matter that libertarians oh, are providing please. solutions for. So, for instance, yeah. So, you know, we we have a regressive a regressive property tax system in Florida. You know, it's um we're not capped like California with Prop 13, where they have a one percent uh, increase of cap on property. Instead, we what we do is we have a something called Save Our Homes, which has only for residential property a, a like a three percent cap on the increase of of property taxes. So, guess what? Um, that means that snowbirds investment properties commercial properties get their property taxes increased by a lot and they get pat those costs that cost increase gets just passed over to to consumers regular people like uh regular people in florida so i espouse something either either just uh, straight up abolishing property taxes or going to a one percent uh, at least a one percent cap like they do straight across the board like they do in california not this wonky complicated property tax exemption system that exists uh, and, and, and frankly, nobody um, like school school districts don't really get funded directly from property taxes. It all gets collected up in Tallahassee or state government by the legislature, and then they write a check to everybody. That's really how good things get funded. Uh, those kind of services get funded in, in Florida. Uh, on the other side of that, uh, you know, what else is the biggest issue? Uh, property ta- property insurance. So property insurance is is a huge deal in Florida because we literally have a law. We literally have a law that says if you're going to get you that you mandates that all mortgages that have some kind of insurance attached to them must get windstorm insurance, windstorm like or or or, prop, or like a hurricane insurance or or they call a, or prop just basically has a category of property insurance. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that adds an enormous cost now uh, to, to 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 home ownership, but the the reality is that it's not fixed; it's variable. So inflation goes up, the the price for replacement of homes goes up. All of a sudden, the the insurance companies cannot uh, under can, cannot continue to uh, to hold on to that policy because it's just it's not they only designate so much money toward it, uh, and they start dropping people. This is the private sector. So what we have now is a monopoly on property insurance. That's a state monopoly that is also going bankrupt. So all of a sudden, uh, so when you're going to get dropped by either the public insurance or the private insurance and have to seek even higher and higher premiums. Uh, to pay to to afford to, afford to keep your house to, in order to keep your house in order to abide by the state law that says you were mandated to have this type of insurance. So the difference ends up being is if you're in a in a bad area, if you're in a a, a coastal area, your home is anywhere like 25 miles from the coast, you're going to be paying an extra eight to ten thousand dollars a year in in insurance, and just an insurance right. that gets us gets attached to obviously gets broken down in monthly payments and added to your your monthly payments for your mortgage is your mortgage will, will is the mortgage company that's going to buy by the law, even if you don't. 
uh, or if you don't want to. If you buy everything cash and you don't have a mortgage, and you know you just go without, and, and that's perfectly fine. But that's really the system that we have in place. Governor DeSantis called in in June for I'm sorry in May. He called in May for a special session to fix the problem. Or that was going to happen a month later in June. We're now in September, and it still hasn't happened. Why? You know, at this point, like I said, he's uh, he can't even convince his, le- his legislatures to do it. He doesn't, and he frankly doesn't have the balls to to go against his own his own people. And he'd rather let people basically lose their homes on mass. So mm-hmm. because that's really what's going to happen. They're just going to have to stop paying bills. Uh, on the other side of that, you know, one of the biggest uh, cost cost of living issues, of course, is energy. Like everyone's seen at the gas pumps, right? But oh, in Florida, yeah. we have, like a lot of states, we have a, we have a, a massive monopoly on electricity generation, whether it's uh, at a local, we have a big utility, which is Florida, uh, Florida Power and Light or, or Duke Energy. Duke Energy is also in a couple other southern states. Uh, and then some other places have um, smaller, uh, you know, co-op, which a co-op of, of power, uh, you know, power electricity generators, uh, utilities that, uh, that are ba- sometimes owned by Wall Street companies, actually. So in some places, uh, like in Key West, you know, you can go from paying, you know, less, you know, about around two hundred dollars for your ho- for a home for a monthly bill to seven hundred dollars all of a sudden. I mean, it, oh that, that's that's crazy. But it, but the average is somewhere around three, you know, the, the average is somewhere around uh, uh, two to three hundred percent, somewhere in between there. Not not four or five hundred percent, which is which is the acute problem. Now in Florida, we we're number one for solar for solar energy potential. We don't got solar though. Uh, we, because utility keeps blocking it, um, we, we're number one for tidal potential. So you can put out buoys that generate electricity that just goes up and down on, on the waves, generate electricity. We don't got that at all. And of course, nuclear, right? So ultimately, you know, we're there's so much about Florida, uh, Florida policy that's actually governed by the federal government, whether it's nuclear, whether it's our water, whether it's a uh, whether it's um, managing our waterways. You know, we have big ass Lake Okeechobee. Uh, that that is um, is is just this is run by the federal government by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and we're not really allowed to clean it up. We're not allowed to to manage the uh, to manage the uh, uh, cl- real cleanup efforts for for that water water uh, body of water. Uh, it eventually gets contaminated by pollutants, upstream pollutants, usually like agricultural runoff. So there's nutrient rich that causes like these algae blooms over there. Right. Uh, and so just getting, you know, you know, my, my alternative, uh, I, my alternative slogan for the campaign really is, you know, make Florida free, right? Like this idea that we need to uh, have an independent Florida, but in order to really seize our own destiny, seize it, back, you know, we have to do that by just taking over control of the, of the control that the federal government has on regulations here in Florida. So I said nuclear, right? Because we, we shouldn't rely on, uh, we have, there's clean energy technology now. We haven't. The United States hasn't had a new nuclear power plant anywhere in the country for like 40 years. And the last right. one application that came in is all that you see is like improvements or expansions of existing existing sites. So if we, we assume that our own regulatory body, we can approve our own, you know, we don't need the feds for that. Uh, we, same with the um, same with the water, right? It, a Florida constitution says that only the state of Florida, not the federal government, is in charge of water of water rights in, in the state. It's just simply natural that we, we would assume control over these and not even that, stop asking permission from the federal government uh, on these on these matters. Uh, and then um, ultimately, so these are the, the the big you know ultimately for like the environmental cleanup you know we, we need to stop like, like just tossing um, 
money at problems that only scratch the surface of like a, a water-based pollution. You know, we have um, basically what happens is they, they basically put chemicals in the water that apparently attaches to nutrient contaminants and lets it float to the bottom of water and just stay there forever, right? That's really what a, a lot of this is, or or a mechanical process where they suck up water uh, uh, and and they you know basically a sep have some kind of separation for for algae and spit the water back out, you know, and uh, that's none of it goes to the root of the cause, which is right. resol resolving the nutrient pollution upstream or finding a way to to prevent or you know, capturing the nutrients. So uh, I endorse this process called uh, this process through uh, an organization called Hemp for Water, which basically uses hemp, uh, industrial hemp uh, application to fix uh, nitrogen and other nutrients uh, through their patented process that is that is not evasive that is you know obviously promotes uh, uh promotes actual he water health and uh, and ultimately gives us uh gives us a chance to actually solving the problem at its root causes i mean there's a lot of other issues that uh that really are are, are very central to our uh to the state of florida you know I, I, things like defend the guard i i'm i'm all in i'm all on board you know i'm a, i'm a libertarian we are we are the number we are the anti-war party of the united states and, you know, the, the federal government is using our, our, the National Guard to different states as a recruit backstop because who wants to go to war forever, right? Wants to see their buddies and uh, right. themselves maimed and, 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 and then come home and, and uh, you know, like one guy would, like one guy said on the Internet, you know, I lost both my legs so I can so I can see these guys uh, for, for the GI program. And then I see these guys getting, you know, their uh, their uh, their tuition debt, uh, you know, uh, pay for waived, right? right? So you know the idea that it's even you know, and you had one neocon on in, in neocon in Congress tweeting out, why did they do this? They're getting rid of the number one recruitment, uh, you know, uh, idea that we have, right? For for joining the military, <laughs> and ultimately, you know, this this nonsense, the nonsense would be stopped if we if we closed uh, if, if we passed uh, the Defend the Guard Act, which is a law that basically prohibits. The use of national guardsmen to on foreign deployments without a a, a constitution uh, a congressional declaration of war, like the constitution says. At the right. very least, these are these you know it's not like the constitution is a is a is a bad document, but obviously there's something wrong with that after two hundred that has not been able to restrict or rein in uh, the continued growth and uh, of of government and the continued undermining of of individuals and state rights. So it's really it, at the end of the day, it's only as good as the people who are going to represent it, right, and promote it and enforce it. So that's what we have to really get back to. Uh, I think we're at a level, we're getting to a level playing field between the big media companies. That's why I'm doing this podcast, because mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, we the people are are the check. We are the ultimate authority. We're the ones that grant the sovereign uh, sovereign authority. We're the ones that give authority to to states to all these government agencies uh, because it originates from us, not not from them. Uh, there, there's no divine right, uh, you know. There's no a deity that came from heaven and said this. We we're giving the authority to the United States Congress or to the Supreme Court or to the governor's mansion, no, or the or the mayor's uh, or, or the um, or city hall. By no means, it's always been the people, and we're gonna get there. And we're and libertarians are ready to uh, to run for office everywhere and and really promote issue uh, alternatives to uh, to the uh, to what's the current the current situations in society, whether it's education, energy, housing. I mean, uh, 
it's not it's it's a, it's not simply about contrasting and calling out the inconsistency of the Democrats and Republicans who are just joining mm-hmm. forces in agreement. It's really about providing solutions for people who who have been for people's issues that have been ignored by both parties. So it's not like oh you're ignoring them. No no no. It's now look this is a simple this is a simple way to do this right. We don't have to we don't have to uh, deal with being ignored. We don't have to put up with it anymore. So you know that's what the you know we don't have to compromise in order to uh in, in order and and beg for our freedoms. We we have our freedoms. We we don't have to compromise any anything ever. And that's where oh, we're I at. Th- yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I and I'm you know I'm real glad we did this podcast. I'm real glad that Florida has a real solid pro liberty candidate on the ballot for not just governor but also senate. Um, like I said, really good, really good libertarian ticket there. And there's some other really good libertarians all across the country. So I think, uh, you know, I mean, people are going to be fired up once they, once they, you know, dig into the libertarian party's message and start seeing, you know, these candidates out and about. And, you know, I'm just, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm really excited for a lot of you guys come November. I think, uh, I think it's going to be really interesting. Just before we wrap up here and go, you know, do you have anything you want to shout out? You know, website, Twitter handle, upcoming events, just anything you want to promote? Sure. I mean, right now, I I'm I'm sharing the news that this uh, this week, this past week, uh, the campaign has welcomed uh, a pastor Jerry Tub uh, Rorabaugh uh, from Jacksonville. You know, I uh, I'm really proud. He's the running mate, the lieutenant governor running mate for the campaign. Uh, he's he's uh, I, I've, he, he's a great communicator on these issues as well. Uh, I always wanted, I felt that, 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 um, you know, his call to action, his call to people of faith to basically not rely on government to make people better is, is something that people need to hear. Uh, and I'm, I'm very happy that he's joined the campaign. Uh, we're, you know, we're going to be expanding on all these issues in a written format on the website in the next couple of days. You know, I'm I'm really excited to just be hitting the campaign trail. We will be posting some of the events that we'll be we'll be participating on. I know uh, Pastor Tubbs going to the Panhandle in uh, in a, in a week and uh, next week, and uh, we're obviously going to be doing different events for you know for the for September 11th for the you know for the remembrance the anniversary of September 11th, uh, and we have um and those are the those are kind of things that are uh, up and coming. Uh, if you want more information, you can you can check out the website or you can go to social media. It's all the same. Uh, Roosforflorida.com, R-O-O-S-F-O-R Florida.com or at the socials, same thing, Roos for Florida, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, even TikTok and uh, soon to be YouTube. There we go. Go check them out. If you're in Florida, be sure to look them up and, and consider them as you go to the polls in November. Hector, it's been awesome having you on the show, man. I've, I've really appreciated it. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Taylor here with the first episode of the Bonfire Briefing Podcast. Today, I'm talking to UFC Bantamweight prospect Julio Arce. He's 5-3 and three in the UFC and coming off an impressive win at UFC 273 over Daniel Santos. In addition to his most recent win, we talked about his journey to the UFC, last weekend's UFC 274 pay-per-view, and what his fight plans are for the remainder of the year. Hope you enjoy the conversation.
All right, there we go. Julio Arce, welcome to the show. What's going on, my man? How you been? Man, I've I've been pretty good. How about yourself? Dude, I'm still, you know, watching the, you know, my fight, my pre my last fight and just like reliving the moment, but just like nonstop observing. Yeah, man, I definitely want to get into that because your win over Santos was uh, incredible. I mean, if people are looking for, you know, a super impressive display of uh, of boxing in the UFC, I mean, I think that fight uh, is a great example of that. You know, and not just your boxing either, to your kicks, man. They, you, you don't, you know, you set them up and everything, but you don't really wind up to them. It's just, you know, you throw that thing and it's right there at its target. It's, uh, it, it's super impressive. You know, I, I know I retweeted that, uh, that kick that you knocked out Erosa with, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of the yeah. smoothest head kicks I've ever seen. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank you. You know, do, do you attribute that to your training at your, uh, your current gym? Yeah. I mean, look, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been training on the Tiger Showmas now for 21 years. Damn. Yeah, I've been there from the start to where I am now. And, you know, it, we, st- we started like a, well, it started, we started with like a karate base. And then we adapted to the ever-changing mixed martial arts. And, you know, like I was taught like a lot of, you know, look, we we, we, we used to be like with the, kind of the discipline of karate, but we started, you know, going to the world of MMA and the showmans, you know, they, they did that. They didn't just like say, okay, this is the only way we're going to do it and this is the only way that works. No, they're like, no, nah, we're going to add on to this. We're doing jujitsu in there. We're doing this. And dude, the, the amount of things I've learned, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It, it's amazing. You've been at the same gym uh, for 21 years. I, I do want to talk about your most recent win, but I'd love to hear about, you know, how you got into MMA, what the journey to the UFC has been like, you know, everything like that. If you could give me a little overview. Of course. So, you know, like when I was, when I was little, you know, I kind of went through like the stages of life of, of, uh, being a skinny kid. And when I came to live in, uh, in New York, you know, I kept thinking, I was like, yeah, you know, I keep whatever I want. And I became like, I became a, a fat kid, an overweight fat kid. And, you know, of course, dealing with the the ruthlessness of uh, kids in school. And I couldn't really, find, and I was trying to find, you know, like other activities that I would like fit in, but it's like I wanted something that I would hold myself accountable for. Something would be like mine, like you know that I. I it's like a, it's like my journey. So, right. my oldest sister Katz brought me into uh, Tiger Showman's, and from there on, I you know I fell in love with it ever since, and I was just like, oh, this is this is what I love to do. And then next thing you know, like I was losing weight, I was doing uh, jujitsu competitions. Um, our own in-house tournaments where we, all the, all the Tiger Showman's locations gather and have all their students, you know, kickbox and uh, do jujitsu. And 
then from there, when I finally, you know, turned 18, I, I was able to start fighting. And here I am now. <laughs> right. Is, is, um, about 18, is that, um, is that when you started doing like the, like the golden gloves getting into that? Cause I know you were the, the 2011 champion there. When, when did you start, you know, getting into that kind of competing? So when I turned 18, I finally was able to do, um, actually started my career off in amateur MMA, which mm -hmm. was pretty cool. And then, um, my coaches were like, all right, we gotta, it's like, you done jujitsu tournaments, you're doing MMA where you're kind of displaying your jujitsu. We want to see you display more of your striking. Mm -hmm. Then they had me do um, kickboxing fights, amateur kickboxing fights. Then, you know, I think I was, I, I racked up, uh, I was six and oh as an amateur in amateur MMA. And mm -hmm. then I was five or five and oh as an amateur kickboxing. And then um, I got my, I got my first loss in kickboxing, and they wanted me to trust my hands more, and mm. that's where like you know, you're doing the Golden Gloves. So I'm like, all right, it's like I didn't want to do it at first. I was just like, ah, I don't want to do boxing, Bob. And I, you know, like a kid filled with excuses sometimes. Where you're just like, ah, I don't, I, you know, I like doing MMA. I like doing everything. I didn't want to do just boxing, right? But it actually turned out to be the best experience I could ever have because I fought every week. And next thing you know, I went from fighting in like these little school gyms to fighting in Madison Square Garden, which was a huge, huge accomplishment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet that had to be uh, crazy. What What is it like fighting in Madison Square Garden compared to some of the other venues that you fought at before? Dude, it's unreal. It's unreal because, I mean, look, it's the, the mecca of uh, boxing. And I got right. to do that. And it was my first boxing experience. I'm going to people who were, who've been doing boxing since they were little. And I'm, doing, I'm like doing, practicing every discipline. But people who just specifically um, do just boxing. And I was getting in there and I was beating these 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 boxers and it felt great because it's like all the hard work is really coming into play. Like I had a mission. I wanted to go professional. So if winning the, winning the golden gloves was my way to becoming a pro. It's like, then I was making sure I got that done. Right. I, I can't remember who it was. There was a, I think it was, it was an MMA fighter, UFC fighter who, uh, said something I think maybe last week about, you know, like the crowd in Madison Square Garden is so loud that they couldn't even hear their coaches giving them advice. Oh my God. You know, you know, like it, it is like that, but when, you know, I think um, everybody's different for me. The moment I, I, I fought at the garden is like, all right, you just got to focus on just one voice, focus on one voice. That's it. And that's what I did, even through the crowd, through the sound of the crowd. Okay, so you were able to kind of tune everything else out and just kind of focus on, you know, the one person that you really needed to get through to you in that moment. Absolutely. So how did you um, go from fighting in a 
ring of combat to, to getting your way on Dana White's contender series? So, you know, the, the journey to the UFC was also, you know, uh, it was, it was filled with a couple of like little upsets here and there because, you know, I started, you know, once I became a, a turn professional, you know, I was, I was kind of climbing up and then as I was, uh, I think seven and zero. You know, I got my first loss. Uh, you know, I was, I, was, I was on the radar for to get, you know, picked up by the UFC. And I got offered a early fight, like a, like even earlier in my career, I think I was 3-0 and to fight. Um, I forgot who he is in the Bantamweight division. I don't think he's around any, any longer. But it was, a, it was a fight in Canada. And... You know, my coach was like, was like, no, it's like, we don't want to put you under the bright lights too soon. You need to build. You need to have time. It's like, you're just like, we're not going in there. And I thank my coaches because they watched out for me in, in that regard because, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I'm like, yo, it's like, this is my time. But right. they're like, no, nah, you don't want to get in there under the bright lights where, you know, it's like you have to deal with the nerves. You have to deal with the crowds. Like, it's like, you're not ready for that even though you are, then like, trust us, like, just wait. And I was like, all right. It's like, kept fighting. And then um, I, I, I got my first loss under, you know, Brian Kelleher. Mm. And then I was, when we were supposed to fight again, I got hurt and he ended up fighting and he was in, a, I think it was Dana White's looking for a fight. And that oh, yeah. night, he knocked somebody out with a spinning back fist, and he got picked up. Mm. So in my mind, I'm like, damn, I lost that opportunity. That's twice. But I'm like, I'm like, forget it, man. So I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep training, keep doing my thing. Um, we did the rematch, and you know, look, he he tapped me out. Well, actually, he didn't get, he didn't get, he got picked up after we fought the second time. And then, you know, like, then then he got the spinning back fist knockout. Um, and then I'm like, oh, let me move to 45. And I moved to 45, got the titles there. And then there was another Dana White, Dana, a contender series, uh, looking for a fight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that fight, I don't know why I put a lot of stress on myself. And I didn't fight the way I normally fought. And I was like, like, what the fuck, man? It's like, it was just one of these, like, fights that, you know, I had a gritty opponent. But, like, I think I just fought with, like, pressure on my shoulders. Like, this this is, like, a, a young fighter mentality. And then it's like, the fight was just like boring. Like I won the fight, but it was one of those just like that somebody else got picked over me because I didn't fight the way I wanted to fight. Right. And so then I just kept fighting. I just I was like, all right, you know, let's keep going. Let's, you know, let's get some, let's defend this title. Um, and then I got an opportunity at uh, the Contender Series. And when I went there, I fought Peter Petty's and, you know, I, I TKO'd him the second round. I hit him with like a barrage. Like I hit him like a 30-piece combo. And, 
And so it's like when you when you're in a video game and you're just button smashing, just like pressing and just trying to get this done. But right. you know, I'm thinking I'm like, yo, that was more than enough to earn my my shot, and I still didn't get it. And it was at that point where you you look at it and you're like, it was like a little bit of like I left my mark. I showed him that you know like what I can do. But then again, it was a little, it was like heartbreaking because like, I'm like, damn, it's like, it's like, I still didn't get in. And, you know, I still like, it's like, it's like, was like, what was it going to take for me to, you know, finally be able to, to get a call from these guys. And, and after that, you know, like it, it was a little, it was a little like saddening. I felt, I felt, I felt like, I felt a little bit like shit. But then I'm like, you know what? Like, like in my mind, I'm like, it's like my time will come. It's like my journey is different than everybody else's, you know. And I did a uh, kickboxing fight in Glory, and knocked the guy out. And then I just kept training. And then next thing you know, it's like, um, it was the first time uh, Stipe fought Francis Ngannou, and I got a short notice call to fight Dan Ige because I think it was Charles. Rosa, not not Charles Rosa. Um, is it Charles Rosa? Yeah, yeah, it was Charles. Yeah, Charles Rosa. Rosa. He got hurt, and they need a replacement. So my teammates, management, just started going on Twitter, and my teammate Chain was like, "Yo, this guy's ready. He's been ready for it." And then they gave me that fight, and next thing you know, I was fighting uh, Ige on the in UFC 220, and and I beat him, and look, he's a top contender now. So, and now here we are, man. Yeah, that yeah, no, that that is a it's a really crazy uh, journey to the UFC, and I, I think the consistency in your mindset is is awesome. You know, despite the the different hurdles and and challenges that you had, you you knew that you would get your shot in the UFC one day if you kept you know training and fighting and. You know, you, you might have hit a couple of roadblocks on the way there, but, you know, you, you did eventually get that shot. And, and when you finally got it, did, did you finally feel like, yes, this is my moment. I'm going to go out there and, and you know, ma- make the best of it no, no matter what. Absolutely. Like everything, everything felt right. And I, and I was like, I'm like, this is, this is, this is the moment I was waiting for. Like. The other moments maybe it was too soon, but this is the right moment. Yeah, and and Dan Ige, like like you said, I mean he's a he's a top contender guy now. I mean that that's a hell of a guy to have to make your UFC debut against. Uh, <laughs> how how was your training whenever you um, were preparing? Uh, it was short notice, right? How how much uh, notice did you have in fighting him? It was two weeks, but I I was I've, I was relentless in the gym, you know. So like I was there even when uh, like I'm there even when I'm not getting ready for a fight. I, I want to stay in shape. I want to stay stay ready, ready for anything. Right, so, stay stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Exactly. Yeah. What? Um. So, you know, when you're uh, you know, when you have a full fight camp, you know, you you have. Uh, a lot of time to get in all the training that you need to get prepared. And, you know, obviously there's a, a significant advantage in, in, you know, being able to go through a full, 
fight camp versus having to fight Danny Gay on, on two weeks notice, you know, I mean, how did you guys cram in all that you needed to do in, in that two weeks? I mean, that's just, that's such a short amount of time to have to fight somebody like that and to come out, you know, successful. I mean, to beat him. Yeah. Well, you know, like we, we didn't, we didn't really cram for it. Like, uh, like even like I fought in, when I fought in glory, like I just stayed, I stayed in the gym. Like I stayed training as if there was a fight for me. Right. Even before we, we heard that Charles Rosa had gotten hurt and they needed her looking for an opponent. Um, you know, my other teammates, they had their fights. So I was in there training with them, doing hard sparring rounds, everything that has to get done, like my conditioning, all that. Like it, like I didn't take the, the, the foot off the gas pedal. I was just like, yo, let's keep it going. Let's keep it going. So then by the time they gave me this short notice fight, I was already in the fight shape that I needed to be in. Right. And, you know, for the first, uh, I think your first six fights or so in the UFC, you were fighting at featherweight. But, you know, here recently you've dropped back down uh, to Bantamweight and have been fighting there. And, and, and you've, you've held titles in both weight classes. I'm wondering, you know, what, what differences do you notice um, in in how you fight, how you train, how you prepare at, at 145 versus 135? You know what, for when, when I decided to make my move to 45, when I was in the regionals, in the regional circuit, I made that jump because I didn't want to deal with, uh, like I didn't have a nutritionist like I have now to help me with my weight cut. Um, and it wasn't, and I can say it, like it wasn't as structured as I should have been with my weight cuts, which mm-hmm. made me do the move to 145. And then when I got into the UFC, you know, like these guys are just so much bigger than me. Right. Like, like if you see me, like you can clearly see I'm a, I'm a 35er, not a 45er. So like I'm in there with dudes who are walking around much heavier dropping to 145 now look i held my own but if i wanted like any type of championship trajectory like it was at 35 not at 45 right yeah and i and i think you can um you can definitely see that throughout your fights in the ufc i mean you know in your return to bantamweight in the ufc you know you tko'd andre ewell and you know your most recent win over uh, Daniel Santos, man, you looked super impressive. Like, like I said, I mean, everything, dude, your, your jab, you know, using that to stifle a lot of his, his offense, your body shots were nasty. You know, in the second round, you really started picking him apart with those body shots. And, you know, he, he was coming at you with some, with some serious power, but you were able to just kind of, you know, stick to the game plan, pick him apart with your boxing, I mean, it was just, it, it, it was a super impressive victory, man. How did, how did you feel after uh, that fight, you know? Dude, I, I walked away from that fight and I'm just like, the fact that I, you know, I used to jab around kicking a left hand most of the time. And I'm like, I'm like, this is the way it has to be done. I'm like, I just felt in the, I, I was in the zone. Like I felt like, I'm like, this was the way I, 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 
I normally fought. This is my fun way of fighting. And I'm like, it's like, and I should have been fighting like this for, for, you know, it's like, there's just points in your training, even during like your, your, your fights where it's like, you're fighting, but you don't, you don't fight like your usual self. And I, I wasn't me. And I'm like, and I paid for it by losing like split decisions. And then in this fight, I felt like it just felt complete. Well, partially complete. I need to now start doing more takedowns and more involve more wrestling in there. But like, I'm like, I wanted to see the fr- the look of frustration in his face when he had a hard time trying to just catch me, trying to land something like desperation building in his eyes. And I'm, as I'm just like picking away at him, that's, and like, and I, and that felt great to see. Oh yeah. I, I bet it did because, you know, in that first round, like I said, I mean, he was throwing some serious heat at you. I mean, he was, he was winding up on some of those big shots and, you know, he, he caught you with a couple of things there early. Uh, I imagine it had to feel pretty good, you know, surviving that first round, those first initial uh, onslaughts. And then yeah, whether the storm with them, he's a, he's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, to give credit to him, I mean, you know, it was his debut, you know, I mean, he, he fought pretty well those first couple of rounds in his own right, but man, you just, you, you really stuck to it and uh, picked him apart. And I mean, you even, you even wobbled him with another just fucking smooth head kick there at like the end of round one, you know? And I, I, I knew watching that, I was like, oh man, this guy, he's in for a long, long fight. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, and Look, in this fight, I know I was being I was being kind of looked over. And, oh, you know, since he comes from Charles Oliveira's camp, they're like, yeah, you know, this kid is a, is a prospect. This kid's going to be trouble. And I'm like, nah. He's like, got to watch out for me. I'm the trouble. Yeah, yeah, they, they hyped him up pretty good before the fight, you know. I mean, they they really uh they really painted him out to be this, you know, this future prospect in the UFC. It may and you know, maybe he will be, right? But Yeah. Yeah, I feel like you you came in there and you just put the stamp on that real quickly. You were like, "Absolutely not. This is my time. I'm the prospect." Yeah, it's like I'm like it's like I like I've been here. Like this is this was my eighth UFC fight. I'm like I'm like, nah, it's not happening. Not here. Yeah, well, you know, what do you think is uh, is next for you after such an impressive win like that? Do you have any any opponents in mind? What are you thinking? Um, I don't have any opponents in mind. Like, uh, I'm I'm actually trying to hopefully fight again end of July, August, like around there. And then probably, so then it gives me time to like recover then after that fight and then hopefully get another one before the year ends. But, you know, I think my, after my loss to uh, Song Dong, it set me back. And then I have to fight a person doing the UFC debut. So it's like, I got to build back up. But I think after that kind of performance and that fight, I think the next step would be just a fight that'll get me closer to the top 15. 
Oh, right, right. Definitely. Um, you know, I, I want to wrap up here soon, but before we do, I, I'd like to talk about uh, UFC 274. Uh, did, did you watch any of those fights at all? Did you watch the pay-per-view? Oh, yeah. Like, I watched those. Those fights were insane. Um, it's uh, like I, I, it sucks that I, the cowboy fight didn't happen because I love cowboy, uh, cowboy Cerrone. He's, oh, yeah. It sucks that he got like food poisoning. And so I was looking forward to that fight. And then, you know, the Michael Chandler fight. That Holy was just shit, dude. <laughs> that front kick was crazy. He just hit him with the Anderson Silva. Dude, it was even... I feel even... bad for Tony, though, because, I mean, I know Tony, you know, Tony said, you know, he wanted to go in there and have fun, but he just had a big chip on his shoulder with all the stuff he was saying. And, like, it, it sucks that he, you know, he, that now now he, now he lost his fight and he lost it in that fashion. Right. So, like, I just yeah. hope he's okay, though, because after that Gagey fight, we took just, like, so much damage and... Now he gets knocked out like that, like, like I just I just hope he's okay. Oh yeah, definitely. That was one of those fights where you you kind of got to see the the duality of being an MMA fan, you know, because that that front kick was awesome, you know. Yeah. I mean, it just was. I mean, it was a hell of a front kick, you know. The way, you know, the the way that Tony fell to the mat afterwards, that you know, Michael Chandler flipping off the cage like three, four times, however many times he did those flips. Um, and, you know, and then his, his he pushed call the out. Rack. He pushed the cut, man. I was like, yo, get out of my way. I'm going to do another flip. <laughs> yeah, he was like, wait a minute, brother. I've got to get in a couple more <laughs> flips. Um, and, you know, so it was it was really cool to see. And then, you know, Chandler on the mic after a win is, you know, next to none. I mean, he he always cuts these awesome promos after he's he wins. But, you know, if you've you've been watching MMA a long time, you know, like like I have and like you have, you know, you hate to see somebody like Tony Ferguson lose in that fashion because, I mean, he's a killer, you know, and he looked good, you know, in the first round. He looked pretty good. But but man, to to lose it you know, so quickly in the second round with with a devastating knockout like that, you know, is fourth loss in a row. Like you said, I, I think we were all just. You know, when we were watching the Justin Gaethje fight, I think we were all just, you know, begging for that fight to end. You mm. know, no nobody wants to see him go through that kind of punishment. And it's it, it's kind of hard to reconcile these recent losses of his with, you know, the fact that he was on, you know, that that super impressive win streak that he was on for what, like six, seven years. He didn't lose a single fight in the UFC. Yeah. You know, like it's, you know, it, it's hard to even... It would have. It, it was an impossible to imagine at that time that he would uh, rack up the the losses that he had. I, I know a lot of people were hoping that he would get a step down, you know, in competition. You know, a little bit of a. There's not really any tune-up fights in the UFC, but <laughs> you know, losing three in a row and then fighting Michael Chandler is, is uh, definitely not a step down in competition. Not at all. No, and then uh, you know, and then the main event. You know, there was all the, you know, there was all the, you know, the controversy about the weight uh, surrounding it. And I feel like that kind of, 
you know, that kind of became the narrative of the fight. But once that fight started, man, it was crazy from beginning to end. All all three minutes of it, or however long that fight lasted, it was, you know, back and forth, crazy. I mean, oh my god! And then, you know, the thing is, like, I get a, uh, you know, Charles had that whole the the whole weight thing with the scale and stuff, and that guy went in with a bigger reason to win. Right. He's like, I'm gonna show you guys why I'm the champion. Right. Yeah. I think he, um, you know, he said after the fight, he was like, you know, the lightweight champ has a name and it's Charles Oliveira. So he's, you know, I mean, he's obviously going to be in the next title fight, you know, whoever it's against. Um, and he definitely deserves it. I mean, he's, he's really putting together a resume, man. Yeah. You know, I think, I, do you think they'll put a, they'll, they'll make him fight. Will he fight Connor or Islam? I th- the, you know the 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 MMA purist in me wants to see him fight Islam. You know I feel like yeah, he's due for it. Yeah, I feel like it's you know it's his time. You know he deserves the shot. You know Habib tweeted at you know, you know tweeted it the other day. Said that that's kind of the only fight that uh, that makes sense. And and you know I, I kind of think it is. But yeah. you know, you you can't really blame anyone for wanting to fight Conor McGregor, and they want to get paid. That's yeah, favorite. that big Conor McGregor payday, man. You know, I, I won't ever fault anybody for wanting one of those. But uh, I, I would really love to see him fight Islam. I mean, you've got you know two people there. I mean, both the grappling with both of them is just it, it is wild. I mean, I think it would be one of the best grappling matchups that we've seen in a while and it, it's it's hard to even think about who would come on top you know in those exchanges mm. i just think like Oliver just has so many more ways to win yeah yeah i think so too and you know everyone always talks about his his grappling you know like like they should you know don't get it wrong but like he he knocked down gaethje to set up that rear naked choke it's yeah. not like he you know, took him down and, and, and smothered him with his wrestling and then submitted him. I mean, he knocked him down. He's He's got hands too, man. Everyone talks about the submissions because they are dangerous, but he can put your lights out too. Yeah. You know, I mean, he had um, his fight, you know, with Michael Chandler was uh, pretty similar, you know, and his fight with Poirier was similar too. You know, he faced a little adversity early on, you know, he got knocked down in the first round against all three of those guys, but you know, he's able to just, it's like when he gets knocked down, he really wakes up, you know? Yeah. It's something like that. Cause he, you know, he got rocked in, in all of those early fights, but he was still able to come around and, 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 you know, knock out Chandler, submit Poirier and Gaethje and, and every second of those fights was crazy. You know, no, I don't, I don't think anyone's ever, Accused Charles Oliveira of putting on a boring fight, you know. Yep, that dude's just been on it. Yeah, I mean, what what do you think about the lightweight situation? Do you want to see Oliveira fight Islam next? I definitely want to see Oliveira fight Islam. I think, like, you know, look, this this guy's like you see how how he is on his back. You see how he is standing, like. He's, he's the type of like 
person who's uh, you know he's seen it all through his journey right. he's had he's gone through his peaks and valleys and he became the champion for a reason and i think if you put him now for the new vacant title against islam i feel like he is the person that you're looking to give makachev that kind of fight right because Oliveira would would be you know a, a pretty big step up in competition for Islam, you know, really see if he belongs in that, you know, in, in that championship conversation. Yeah. I think, um, I think a question a lot of people are asking too, is if, uh, if Oliveira beats Islam, do you, do you rank him as a greater lightweight of all time than Habib? Absolutely. Like yeah. he, he went in, like he he's going in there. He's putting pretty much the 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 mini Khabib away. Right, yeah, and I and I think you know they've got some, you know their resumes are kind of similar. There's some different names in there, but you know they both beat Poirier. They both beat Gaethje. I think if you I think if Oliveira goes out there and beats Islam, especially if he does it, you know, and, and he does it early, you know, like he did with Gaethje. I mean, I. I think you've got to put him, you know, at the top of that list or at least above Habib. I really do, you know, and then that's, you know, that's just considering his, uh, his most recent, you know, wins. I mean, that guy's been fighting in the UFC forever. You know, if you look at all of the fights that he's had in the UFC, I do. I think you've got to give it to him. Yeah, it's freaking. He's. He's, he's, you know what? I feel like if Oliveira goes, puts a stamp on like Islam like that, he's accomplished more than Khabib did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Well, listen, man, I've got to wrap it up here. I've got another thing going on at five, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk to me about your journey to the UFC and you know, you know, some of the fights that have happened over the weekend. Um, I really do appreciate it. And just before we close out, you know, do you have anything that, you know, you want to promote any sponsors you want to shout out any, anything like that at all? I'm just always, you know, like team tiger showman's, you know, my coaches, the showman's my boxing coach, Ray, my first original instructor, um, Brian Godoffer, who really been like, like a father in me through all this. And, just everyone who follows my journey, you know, and my whole family, all my supporters. So you know, love it. Thank you guys. Love them all. Oh yeah. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you for hey, coming you on for the show, me, man. I'll, ha I'll have you back anytime. Just hit me up. That was my conversation it. with UFC Bantamweight prospect, Julio Arce. You too. I really enjoyed hearing about his journey to the UFC and the perseverance that required. I mean, hearing him talk about how depressed he was after all the different roadblocks in his career was pretty inspiring. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to follow Bonfire Brief Pod on Twitter for future episodes, and be sure to follow Julio Arce too. His ascension to the top is something you won't want to miss. Thanks for tuning in, and see you next time.
All right, there we go. We're rolling. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. It's uh, absolutely a great pleasure to be on. Thanks to, to you and, and everyone involved with your program for having libertarian candidates on in the past. I'm a big believer in the local and statewide campaigners that represent our party. So I'm really grateful to anyone who supports them. Oh, absolutely, man. And I, and I love talking to libertarian candidates like we were talking about before. And uh, like I said, I mean, there's not much better than getting a getting a presidential candidate on. So I'm just really glad you made the time to come on. Um, now, what, what does a presidential campaign look like in these early stages? Is it has it gotten real crazy yet? or Are you able to just kind of relax and take it easy for the moment? No, it's uh, crazy from the get-go. It's a competitive uh, situation inside the party for the next 18 months. Our party will choose a nominee in May of 2024. While I do uh, expect that it will be me, there are others who might argue with me about that, right? Um, right. There are, there are others who, who will be hopeful of earning the party's nomination. I believe some of those uh, folks to be really uh, well-qualified individuals. So I'm excited to participate in the process with them. But because it is competitive, folks are busy already. I'm relatively early compared to others, uh, but others will be coming in uh, over the next uh, few months. Yeah, and, and what, what does your day-to-day for the campaign look like this early uh, in the process. I'm curious to know. Uh, there's a, a couple of activities that take up most of my time, for example. One is just the blocking and tackling of making contact with folks like you, whether it's a podcast or a website, a blog, a, you know, someone in print. It's managing the social, me- social media aspects of it, as you might expect. You know, we have a a Twitter following, a Facebook following, uh, Instagram. Uh, we manage uh, an email communication list. We have three different websites that are up. So there's a lot of, just like I say, nuts and bolts that have to be tended to. Uh, the other uh, big activity that's that's going on in a heavy way last week, this week, and next week is team building. Mm. We have... Uh, approximately 20 advisors on our team at this point. And we have, uh, besides myself, I am full-time in this project, as you might imagine, we have someone else who's a paid employee of the campaign, and we are onboarding uh, two more people to to work on the campaign over the next uh, few days, or certainly over the next week or so. Um, and then we're going to be onboarding a couple more people after that. So just the, the team building aspect of it alone, uh, is, is, is very, very important. It has to be, has to be managed just right. So that takes up a lot of my focus this week and next week. Oh, I imagine it does. And I, I imagine it's pretty helpful to have, you said you 20 something advisors, uh, helping you. No, out. it's How- awful. Uh, Anyone who wants to do this in the future, my strong advice is to have no advisors whatsoever. I think, I think, you know, limit it to your spouse and maybe your mother. Uh, Zero is the right number. I hope they're all listening. They're just terrible people. 
they are all headstrong. They're all libertarian. They all have their own opinion. And they're worse, and you'll appreciate this, worse, they're diversified. We've got men, we've got women, we've got old, we've got young. Uh, we've got people in the Mises caucus. We have people who are not in the Mises caucus. We have people recent to the libertarian movement. We have people who have been in the libertarian movement for decades. We have a past chairman of the party. Uh, we've got people who are heavy hitter uh, donors and people who just stick their finger in the water. And and all of them have figured out they're smarter than I am and have no problem telling me so on a weekly basis. It's it's just awful. I recommend getting rid of all advisors, but it's too late for me. Oh, man, that's funny. Well, how, how did you come in contact with all these terrible people? Are they people you've worked with in the past, had recommended to you? What the... Oh, yeah, absolutely a hodgepodge. I ran for Congress uh, last year in a special election in Broward County, Florida, which is a weird experience uh, because it's one of the bluest, uh, most Democratic uh, uh, districts in the United States. Oh, and yeah. uh, nobody pays any attention to any races down there unless you're a Democrat. So it's very hard even to get some media attention uh, at all from the newspapers. So I met a lot of people that way. The Libertarian Party of Florida is quite strong, and the Libertarian Party of Broward County in particular is uh, very strong. So I met a lot of people that way, a lot of people who appreciated the campaign and the hard work that uh, we did, uh, came out of the woodwork to help, uh, to advise. And so I onboarded a lot of people that way. And then uh, recently moved to Virginia. Uh, I moved from Florida to Virginia uh, earlier this year. Uh, and met some people up here. So we have people on our team from Virginia and uh, Delaware and New York and North Carolina, as well as the old uh, Florida crew. Uh, so it's, you know, people from, from lots of different places. Really, the only thing that they have in common, they have two things in common. One is that they're libertarian. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other is they, uh, they darn well know that they're smarter than I am. <laughs> and uh, so they're full of uh, great advice. And the truth of the matter is that they make me a much, much better candidate. Um, but, you know, getting better is not always uh, as much fun as they say in the brochure. Right. Right. Uh, you know, I have grown a lot in my libertarianism over the past, uh, say, three years and uh, we have a platform now that I believe in a great deal. And I have enjoyed sharing it already the past few months and look forward to sharing it over the next 18 months with everybody in the party. God, 18 months, 18 months of, of campaigning. That is uh 18 months of campaigning inside the party. Yeah. yeah. And then we have six months of campaigning to the rest of America. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, so, I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. Not me. I'll it's not for the right paint now. of heart. No, I am not happy about that at all. I mean, I'm happy that part of it is me, but the part about it not being you, we are going to change in the future. You, <laughs> you are going to, you are going to run for office in the future. I know that you think I'm lying about that, but it is absolutely the truth. Someday you're going to run for office. Uh, I'm going to help you by the way, which is also weird. And you are going to hate every minute of it, and then you're going to love it, and you're going to realize what I tell everyone who, who gives it any consideration whatsoever. There is no higher calling in the libertarian movement, in the liberty movement, mm -hmm. than campaigning for office, sharing the message, getting the word out, 
with absolutely no expectation of personal financial gain or even self-aggrandizement. You do it for the cause. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And uh, I see this in your future. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not as uh, I'm not as convinced as as you are, but uh, but time will tell. Who It'll knows? give us something to argue about in the future. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and I, I obviously I don't have to tell you this, but like the race for 2024 is already heated up. I'm not surprised that you're already in the thick of things, and and things are crazy. Um, which it, it's wild. We haven't even left 2022 yet, and 2024 is already just right here. Yeah. Um, and, and you're running for president in a time, too, where, you know, I think even more so than than 2016, voters are desperate for another option. You know, they're they're looking at Biden on the left and yeah. they're looking at Trump on the right, maybe DeSantis on the right. Although, yep. you know, I don't know about that. Maybe we'll see. Yeah. Um, yeah. But how, how how did we get to this point where those are the two best options that the the two mainstream parties can come up with? I mean, how. How did we find ourselves in this situation, Mike? I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I have figured it out. I have solved all the world's problems, and I have written it down here. So it will only take me a few moments to explain it, of course. <laughs> um, no, and, and I know you don't expect that from me either, but I, I have spent some time thinking about this. I do believe that, that today is the result of a long chain of events. Maybe when we first stepped off the curb was by centralizing so much power and authority in the federal government over the past couple of centuries. But I do think another inflection point was when the American public began getting its news from different sources, which ultimately, I believe to be a very good thing. It has proven problematic over the past couple of decades in the sense that people on the left get their news from left-wing sources and people on the right get their news from right-wing sources. And people seem to have lost any sense of common purpose, common interests, and consequently, any respect whatsoever for people on the other side of the uh, of the aisle, and this has led each party to grow into these beasts that seem to, uh, on a daily basis, disregard what had been their political agenda mm-hmm. and make their number one objective keeping the other side out of power. And right. I believe that that each party demonstrates almost on a daily basis a greater interest in keeping the other side out of power, not only a greater interest in pursuing what had been their agenda in years and decades past, but to be honest, a a greater interest in keeping the other side out of power than adhering to the Constitution. And I believe in a democracy, this is where authoritarianism grows up. In a democracy, it grows up out of the idea of politicians convincing people we need more power. We politicians, we government officials need more power. And you should give it to us because what you have to fear is the other guy coming to power. What you have to fear is that other party taking over. And you should fear that more than you should fear the loss of adherence to the Constitution, more than you should Uh, fear the loss of your civil liberties. 
this is where authoritarianism comes from. And I think uh, this is probably a long, wind, long, more, more long-winded answer than, than you were looking for. But I do believe that a big reason we're in this weird situation we're in, where people are disappointed with the, with the parties that had represented them in the past, the leaders of these particular parties uh, are especially disappointing. These are situations that come up when too much authority is vested in any particular party. It's too much vested in, in the federal government itself, too much authoritarianism, uh, too much willingness to compromise the law, compromise ethics, compromise the Constitution in order to keep other people out of power. And it's what leads to these weird, weird situations. So I think it's a huge opportunity for the Libertarian Party. You know, you're right. People, uh, people have changed their outlook on certain things. I also think it's an obligation for the Libertarian Party to play a role in the future. Yeah, I know. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I'm glad that, you know, we, we have a liberty-minded candidate like yourself that's willing to jump into that arena and, and fight the battle that I desperately do not want to fight. <laughs> um, but, but you will be joining in the future. I'm well, sorry if I'm the first one to tell you that, but uh, you will be campaigning in the, in the future. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Um, we'll see. I'd love to talk a little bit about um, your background, because I, I feel like we could probably do a podcast just on your your career alone. I and mean, that would probably be the worst podcast ever produced in America. Yeah, but I would love it. <laughs> it would, you I would, you and I might enjoy it. We could do one podcast on me, one podcast on you, and then we'll do a podcast for the rest of the world that they, they would actually listen to. How's that? Hey, I'm, hey, I'm game. Don't, uh, don't tempt me with a good time. Um, but you know, police officer for a little over a decade, PhD in economics, you know, you were at the office of management and budget along with a million other places, all your finance experience. I mean, I could go on and on and I just met you. I mean, could you, could you walk me through your professional background just a bit? Tell me a little bit about the, that. The, the two minute version. Yeah. It's not a coincidence that I have gray hair, even from the standpoint of uh, the passage of time or the, the passage of, you know, one crisis after another. Uh, I was in the banking industry for a little while, um, came out of engineering school and then uh, business school, worked in the banking industry for a little while. Went back to graduate school in Washington, D.C. because I wanted to be interested, wanted to pursue a career. I was interested in public policy. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, earned a master's degree and a Ph.D. in economics at the George Washington University, which is uh, what we would call a rational expectation school, a descendant of the Chicago School of Thought, uh, itself a descendant of the Austrian School of Thought, a free market uh, outlook type of uh, university, uh, really a wonderful, wonderful uh, experience. Yeah, I worked for the White House for a couple years, other government agencies. Uh, I worked for the 1992 Bush re-election campaign as a Republican. Uh, that's the campaign that Bill Clinton won. Uh, so that was a, a tough experience. I was around uh, the, the White House and that campaign when President Bush, I'm talking about Herbert Walker Bush, right? right? right. The, 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 the elder President Bush. I was around when 
he had gone back on his promise. Uh, you might remember his famous promise that, that went something like this. You know, people will ask me to 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 tolerate new taxes, and I'll say, read my lips, no new taxes. Right. And then eventually he went back on that pledge. And for, I got to tell you, for a young conservative economist, that was a tough day, right? Those were, those were tough years. Oh, yeah. uh, that'll teach you to grow out of being a Republican real fast. <laughs> what, so, the, uh, what, what did you do on that campaign exactly uh, for HW? Uh, I was what, a communication was staffer. I, was, uh, I had been a low-level economist working for the Office of Management and Budget uh, for the White House uh, for a couple of years. And then I became a low-level communications analyst uh, on the campaign, uh, which is a, you know, a, a conglomerate of a, a weird set of assignments. For a f- couple of months, I remember uh, my job was to read every word out of Bill Clinton's mouth and look for subtle changes and report them to my bosses. That was a funny assignment. Um, I helped prepare material questions and answers for the president. Uh, When he was getting ready for debates, I would research, you know, what it is that people are likely to ask in a debate, what what kinds of questions they like to ask and, you know, what answers have been traditionally uh, given. Nuts and bolts, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I managed a a team of analysts whose jobs uh, were to keep track of issues uh, surrounding the campaign uh, this is before the internet days, right? Right. So, uh, as you might imagine, it was fairly labor intensive to keep track of things. You know, we 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 had literal files, not uh, electronic files. Yeah, online. couldn't just do a Google search, huh? Yeah, we couldn't just do a <laughs> Google search. Uh, we we kept files of newspaper clippings and and facts and charts and and you know someone would call down to our our basement-esque office and say what can you tell me about xyz issue and we would have to put together a pile of papers and and run it up to whoever was asking so it was that sort of thing um a lot of uh a, a lot of work that thankfully doesn't have to be done the same way uh these days and oh, after God. that, I went back into the banking industry. Uh, I was an advocate for free markets on behalf of the banking industry for quite some time. Uh, a partner of mine and I, after that, uh, had our own business uh, educating bankers um, in a lot of operational aspects, not really political aspects. But mm-hmm. as, as uh, you know, running your own business is, is its own education. And did that for a bunch of years as well. Uh, taught economics at the graduate school uh, and uh, undergraduate level at a couple of universities in Florida. Uh, worked as a substitute teacher in the Broward County Public School High Schools uh, part-time at the same time for a couple of years uh, just to see what that was like. And we can talk about that as well. That was an eye-opening experience. Yeah, what was that like? Oof. Um, 
everything bad you've ever heard about Florida public schools is true. <laughs> if <laughs> yeah, um, it's not hard to believe. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's funny. It's full of well-meaning, hardworking, intelligent, and talented people. Right. And that's one of the real shame of, of, of the whole situation is that teachers are, you know, God bless them. They, they mean well, uh, for the most part, they work hard. They want to do a good job. It's just a very difficult environment, both from the standpoint of dealing with the kids, as well as from the standpoint of how schools are structured. Uh, oh, a yeah. big problem with the industry is that it, there is no competition. There's almost no competition. The vast majority of students have to go to the school that they have to go to. If they have any flexibility at all, it's to go to another public school. Most right. kids don't have the option of going to a private school. And if they do have the option of going to a private school, their family has to pay the whole thing. And because of that price pressure, that cost pressure on the family, private schools are always trying to squeeze their budgets down as low as possible. And so most private schools have to deal with budgets that are much, much smaller than public school budgets. And so the competition, to the extent to which it exists at all, is not anything close to what you would call a, a level playing field. Right. And if, if there was any doubt in my mind uh, about the need for school choice reform before getting involved with the Broward, Broward uh, County Public Schools, that doubt was absolutely erased uh, during those experiences. Oh yeah. The, the, uh, the other, the other way I was involved with schools and, and youngsters came a couple years later when I became a police officer, I'd always wanted to be a cop. Indeed, when I was in grad school, 20 years earlier, uh, in Washington, DC, I had, uh, taken the entrance exam for the Metropolitan uh, Washington, D.C. Police Department and just at the last minute decided uh, I, I just couldn't afford it. You know, I wanted to raise a family and pursue a career and they just weren't paying enough. Right. I'm not sure that's motivation of which I should be proud. I should probably be a little bit embarrassed by that, but whatever. That is the truth of the matter. And so I just put it off. But that was something that, you know, even way back then you had in your mind that yeah. You know, you wanted to do that because I, you know, I feel like going from, you know, like economist to you know, work, you know, working for uh, the the former president, being an economist, being a teacher, I feel like jumping over to law enforcement. That that struck me as interesting when I was reading over your your website and your bio. I feel like it's a it's a pretty interesting career path there. It uh, it was a big change. Uh, change is hard. In general, change is hard. Yes. Uh, which is one of the reasons why change is good and change is so important. Uh, it's because it is hard and it forces you to do things differently and forces you to grow. Having said that, this particular change uh, was large. And uh, I turned 49 in the police academy. Oh, wow. We, we figured out that more than 50% of my class had at least one parent younger than I was. <laughs> and <laughs> a weird stat, huh? Yeah. Um, in, in some respects, being a 49-year-old uh, recruit 
is is hard uh you know thank god i was in good physical condition uh, but it is is a cultural uh change right oh yeah on the other hand being a 50 to 60 year old i did it for 11 and a half years i did it from the ages of 49 to 60 being an older guy uh really helps being the kind of cop you want to be right the police culture will take over your brain there are aspects about that that are good and aspects about that that are bad and you have to really be well grounded on your own two feet to be the kind of cop you want to be rather than just going with the flow right right like I say, sometimes going with the flow is not bad, but there are other instances in which uh, I, I I think I wish more cops were ready to to stand on their own two feet and resist some of the temptations that are that are out there. the The training that you go through as a police officer is such that it it teaches you to be to be careful, right? Mm-hmm. Which is which is not a bad thing. But there are aspects of that that I think go too far in some weird directions. Uh, the, the culture teaches you that there is nothing more important than you going home at night, metaphorically speaking. There's nothing right. more important than protecting your own safety. And I would argue, not just as a, certainly as a libertarian, but I would argue as just a, a citizen, you know, someone who's got you know, 30 year old children, mm-hmm. um, that, that can't be the most important thing. Right. Right. Uh, the, the most important thing has got to be the, the, the safety of the, the people in your community. The, the good news about the police culture is that, uh, you do fall in love with your community. You do, whether you anticipated that, expected that, or wanted that, in some sense, you do. You you take real pride in your ability to add value in your community to try to keep people safe. You do get pissed when people commit crimes in your <laughs> in your zone, especially if it's you know on someone that you know or just you know someone who is an innocent victim. That kind of thing really does uh, affect you, and that's probably a good thing. Obviously, you don't want it to affect you too much because it can be a roller coaster, right? Uh, so there are aspects of the police culture that are really important. I'm a big believer in public service, which is how I ended up in that situation in the first place. It's of course how I ended up working in public policy for the previous 20 years as well. Uh, so I'm not trying to run down police culture, right? but you, you have to be, you have to be on your own two feet so that you don't, uh, get sucked up into the the things that we do as cops that, that can be, you know, that can be lazy. You know, you fall back on the idea that I'm important, uh, that I know the difference between right and wrong, that I know when it's okay to violate someone's civil rights and when it's not. Um, you know, I understand the constitution more than someone else does. And that gives me the right to bend it in certain places. These are the things that, uh, naturally, naturally crop up. Uh, I do not believe what some people assert, which is, you know, cops are bad people and we tend to recruit the wrong kind of people and, you know, stuff like that. I find that uh, to be, frankly, bullshit. 
Right. Um, the vast majority of cops, I say vast majority, I mean damn near every single one of the million beat cops in America does a great job, does the best job that he or she can. Oh, yeah. But the, the training is such. I, I believe that as cops, our effectiveness is actually compromised in many ways by the, the training and the culture in which we're indoctrinated. And of course, the the big thing that I spent a lot of time talking about with regard to police reform is not is not so much the culture, which is uber important, but the structure of how we manage police. Mm-hmm. I believe that we need to sunset this uh, federal doctrine of of qualified immunity and replace it with an environment in which police are are held more accountable and require police officers to carry third-party liability insurance like a doctor does for example right you know when it when a doctor makes a mistake we don't say well you know he didn't mean to cut off the wrong finger uh suck it up buttercup right (laughs) yeah and thank god we don't do that with thank god we don't do that and and (laughs) Right. There has to be not only some accountability, but look, the the idea that you wouldn't have an opportunity to pursue redress in this country, I find un-American. Right. Um, You know, almost every single case in which a cop does something wrong, it's a mistake. We're not talking about, you know, criminal behavior. Obviously, if there's something criminal, there's no protection now and there shouldn't be. Uh, we need to prosecute crimes committed by police officers uh, just as earnestly as c- crimes committed by anybody, or arguably more earnestly, right? Because there's a, a violation of, of faith there. Right. But in too many cases, the deference given to police officers, not, not merely in cases where qualified immunity applies, but in in cases more generally beyond qualified immunity, there's uh, an air of deference accorded police officers that goes overboard. And I appreciate the fact that, that police officers are probably always going to receive some deference in, in a court environment. I, you know, I, I get that. Some of that's going to be a little bit natural, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's overboard. It's way too much. So, I think that we need an environment in which police officers are carrying uh, liability insurance. Um, that way, when mistake, honest mistakes, screw-ups are made, there can be compensation there. And police officers that are, you know, in the habit of being screw-ups are going to get priced out of the market by their insurance premium. Right. And this is so important because right now unions protect police officers too much from the accountability that I believe the industry needs. And while a a union might be in the business of protecting a police officer and, you know, as a libertarian, I'm a big believer that everyone has first amendment right to free association. I'm not trying to run down unions. Mm -hmm. The problem is they do too good a job and the politicians do a crappy job of negotiating with them. (laughs) So if, if you had some third party referee, if you had private sector liability insurance, if there's a, a liability insurance carrier out there who is standing behind the police officers, they're not going to put up with the crap from the unions that says, you know, you can't get certain information. 
Right. Now the answer is going to be, look, if you people want insurance, we're going to need all the information there is in the world. Everything from training records uh, to academy records, past performance, uh, past case issues, uh, all kinds of things. And by the way, we're going to want to interview every one of these cops. So, you know, there's going to be an ability to hold people accountable and an ability to to understand in a greater fullness each individual case if there's someone involved uh, that that can pierce the veil that is put in front of the public by the police unions. So I'm a big believer in moving in that direction. The first step is to get rid of qualified immunity. Mm-hmm. Now, when did um, when, when did you first think about running for public office? Because you you mentioned it earlier. You you ran in that uh, the special election for Congress there. Yeah. Uh, in Florida, is that something that was always kind of like being a police officer? That was always no kind of in the back of your head, or is no. was that no? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, a year and a half ago, our congressman in the area, Alcee Hastings, a longtime beloved Democrat, he himself had problems with uh, past court issues that we don't need to go into. Mm-hmm. Uh, he passed away in office and all of a sudden there was this special election and in the Libertarian Party of uh, Broward County, we thought this would be an opportunity to get our, our word out our message distributed if we participated in this election. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I jumped in, we had a team of volunteers, passed out a lot of brochures, shook a lot of hands in the Walmart parking lots, right? (laughs) Uh, A lot of door to door activity, retail blocking and tackling, getting to know the Palm beach post and the, the sun Sentinel and, and Dade County. Um, uh, a, a great experience, not for the faint of heart. You know, if you, if you have thin skin, this is not an appropriate pastime. I can tell you that much <laughs> people in Broward and Palm beach counties had never even heard of libertarianism, had never heard of libertarian party and didn't have much interest. So it was a lot of hard work to get our message out a rewarding experience, but not for not for those of, uh, of thin skin. Oh, I can imagine it's not. Yeah. What uh... so That wrapped up in January of this year. That was actually a long campaign from April to January because Governor DeSantis put off the election so long. And uh, it gave us a chance to realize that the, the brand of the Libertarian Party has almost no value in it whatsoever. Mm. You could probably get as many votes in many local races running as an independent as you would as a libertarian. Right. Yeah, no, I, believe, I can definitely see that. Yeah, I believe that in part, that's a failure of our past national campaigns. You know, one of the things that a presidential campaign has to do is build the, the brand value of the party so that when statewide and local candidates run thereafter, they're running in an environment in which someone has come before you to introduce the ideas of liberty to your constituents. When I was yeah. running for Congress in, in South Florida, I was 
teaching people how to spell libertarian, right? I mean, <laughs> it was, you really had to start from ground zero. Oh, man. And, and so uh, part of the reason I jumped into to this campaign is because I want to lead the party's nomination process in a direction that says what really matters is getting our message out in a very credible way and at the same time a very bold way that differentiates us hard from the other parties in a way that people will remember. We can't be out there defining ourselves in terms of the other parties. We have to draw real clear distinctions so that people remember us so that they know what libertarianism means. They know what the Libertarian Party stands for at the very least. And in this way, build the ID uh, and the and the value of the party brand so that those who come after us will be able to to be more productive. Yeah. And do, do you think the, the Libertarian Party now is doing a better job of of doing that than they were in the past. I, I haven't been involved with like the Libertarian Party for very long. So I'm unfamiliar with how the party was being led like prior yeah. to 2020 or so. And I, of course they just had the big leadership election not yeah. that long ago. You think, you think the national party is doing a better job now or. I think that uh, I believe that they're the, the heart of the leadership of the Libertarian Party is in the right place. I believe that the leadership of the Libertarian Party understands the conversation you and I are having. They understand the need to brand ourselves in a very differentiated way. They understand how important that is. They understand the importance of local elections and statewide elections. And I'm hoping that they understand the, the role of the national campaign in that process. Right. Uh, over the next 18 months, I'm going to be making that case. So anyone who who hasn't heard that and is not on board with that idea, they will be over the next 18 months, <laughs> I can guarantee. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're definitely yeah. going to let them know. And, and, and that's what I believe is really important about a national campaign is is branding the party, branding our ideas, keep giving giving people an opportunity to understand what our ideas are and vote for something rather than just voting against the other parties. I mean, it, it's okay if you vote libertarian just because you want to send a protest signal. That's okay, right? <laughs> but uh, what we really want is for people to know for whom they're voting, why, why it's important, because that's where brand value, uh, brand value comes from. So to do that, you've got to run a very professional campaign. You have to focus on policy. You can't just focus on focus on why the Republican Party stinks and why the Democratic Party stinks. As easy right. as that might be, you have to focus <laughs> on more than that. And you have to have a credible candidate. Someone doesn't necessarily have to be me, but I do believe it has to be someone who has dedicated a career to public service, who's been involved right. in public service, um, who believes in it. I don't think it's the right approach to say, all government sucks. All government employees suck. Uh, public policy in the United States sucks. And I want to be president. That uh, is a tough sell for people. Right. 
notwithstanding how much of that is true. You know, there is <laughs> very there true. Is some, <laughs> there is some truth to all of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think the better sell is is that we can do better. That there are people involved who want to do the right thing who don't know what the right thing is. That the philosophies pursued by the parties have have come so far from the Constitution as to be counterproductive and not even in the American public's interest. Right. By replacing some of those ideologies, we can make the world a better place and make the lives of American constituents better. Yeah. And, you know, much, uh, (laughs) much like your extensive, you know, professional experience, I feel like, you know, how much the two mainstream parties we have, suck. I feel like we could also do an entire podcast just trashing them if we wanted to. (laughs) Again, not something I'm opposed to, but just, you know, I do, I do want to talk about some of these, uh, some of these ideas you're talking about, some of these policies that you're putting forward in your, uh, campaign. And I, and I think anyone who follows you on Twitter, like I do and would highly recommend, um, or, or goes to your website, uh, is going to notice that you talk a lot about, um, the gold new deal. Yeah. And I want to get that get to that, of course. But uh, I think we maybe need to establish a little context. Um, There's an essay on your website that I'd recommend everyone read um, titled An Open Relationship is a Better Option Than a National Divorce. And um, the idea of a national divorce, you know, like you mentioned in that article, has been the subject of, of debate in libertarian circles pretty prominently for the past few months or so. Sure. Um, you know, some people are for it. Some people are against it. But I feel like uh, people, voters who are outside of that that libertarian circle might not even, you know, understand what's what's being talked about. So, yeah. you know, could you maybe explain what what a national sure. divorce is? What, what, what exactly would that entail? Yeah, well, uh, different people might mean different things by it, but the 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 kernel on which I think a lot of people uh, agree is that many people are interested in one form of secession or another. States having uh, the right and the interest in divorcing themselves from other states, divorcing themselves from the federal government, mm-hmm. and pursuing their own political futures. Mm-hmm. And I think this this comes from a frustration with our federal government. It comes from having too much power. It comes from a frustration of not appreciating how other Americans feel about certain things, right? Democrats mm-hmm. don't want to be in the same country as Republicans and, and vice versa. Right. However, having said that, uh, I don't believe that secession solves these problems. For example, if, uh, if I don't remember the example I, I cited in that uh, essay, but I grew up in, in Illinois, so it's an example that comes to my mind readily. Anyone who spent a lot of time in Illinois knows that that's already two different states. You know, Chicago and downstate Illinois are as different as New York City and Albany, New York. Oh, yeah. Two completely different places. They're just two completely different places. So just to pick the Illinois example, if Illinois were to secede from the rest of the union, 
is not going to solve the problem of Republicans and Democrats being mad at each other. No. So I don't think that secession solves all these problems. The Libertarian Party of Florida last year voted, or I should say earlier this year, voted for secession. And I do not mean that they voted with the idea in mind of making the statement, Florida has the right to secede. They were voting because they thought it was a good idea. They right. were they were voting that they wish Florida would secede. Yeah, Te- uh, Texas Republicans uh, did something similar. They they put it in their platform that they yeah. They're, yeah. they they're going to hold a referendum on whether Texas should yep. leave the union. I believe next year. So ugh. it's a it's a big deal. Um, I believe that not only does it not solve uh, some of our problems, I believe that. It's also a political non-starter in the sense that the vast majority of Americans uh, don't want to live in a, a different country than the United States. Right. Which is, at the end of the day, what we're talking about. Your state wouldn't be part of the United States anymore. Most Americans don't want that. And when I say most, I mean almost all of them. Yeah, don't the, want the that. vast majority. Exactly. When people say secession is not a bad idea. They mean you leaving is not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> they don't mean we leaving, right? Right. Um, so the other part that should be said is that I am not convinced that there is just zero value left in the federal government. Right. On balance, it may be a big red negative, but that doesn't mean that there's no value there to be had. I think the vast majority of Americans, for example, would say uh, national defense is something that is more efficient with with the states hanging together. Mm. Now, having said that, there may be very little beyond national defense that gives anyone a reason to continue participating with the federal government. Right. And so my idea is, and, and by the way, the fundamental idea behind the gold new deal is that we need a very different relationship between us and our government, which is why we're calling it the, the gold new deal, the new deal in the 1930s uh, being a real fundamental change in the relationship between individuals and the federal government, as well as between States and the federal government. Right. So we're kind of poking it in the eye of uh, the new dealers from 1930s to say the gold new deal. We're also making fun of the green new deal, which is an (laughs) equally aspirational phenomenon. It's just more moronic than even the original new deal. Oh yeah. So we're trying to make fun of both of those a little bit, but I like it. I'm a fan. I think you're doing a good job with it. Bless your heart. So (laughs) we're, we're suggesting we need a very different uh, relationship with the government. And so my idea is, and Gold New Deal is a 10-point uh, 10, uh, 10 uh, platform, so don't let me make it sound like everything is, is completely uh, simplistic, but mm-hmm. the fundamental, uh, the big flagship idea is to give states the right to opt out of federal supremacy so that the world will look a lot more like the founders had intended when when they wrote the 10th Amendment. Alternatively, we could just pass the 10th Amendment over again and say, now we really mean it. 
(laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, I don't think people would would go for that. So what I'm suggesting is give states an option. It would require a constitutional amendment that would give states an option to say, uh, we're going to opt out of federal supremacy going forward. So from now on, when there's federal law, even court cases, executive orders that conflict with state law, mm-hmm. we can resolve that unilaterally in our own courts. We can pass state law uh, that says that, you know, we're taking a pass on that. Right. And to the extent to which there's conflicts already, uh, we can unilaterally nullify uh, federal law, federal court orders, federal uh, executive orders. Mm-hmm. So it gives states the right to chart their own political futures, except for those very specific powers that the federal constitution grants to the federal government, namely and mainly national defense. Right. And so you would remain in the union. Anyone taking us up on this uh, option that we are suggesting be offered, you would remain in the union, but uh, your relationship would be very, very uh, different. You'd be able to resolve the vast majority of your political conflicts in your own state houses where people are much more equipped to resolve these conflicts than they are at the federal level where so much rides on the idea of keeping the other side out of, uh, out of power. Some, some of those problems exist in state houses as well, but state houses right. work much more effectively than the U S Congress does. So that's the flagship idea. And then underneath that, the rest of the gold new deal spells out uh, some of the ways in which that relationship would be different. So for example, to the extent to which the federal government needed to raise money, you would have to go through the state to do it. You wouldn't have a direct relationship with individuals. So we'd get the IRS out of the lives of individuals and the state house would fund the federal government. Mm. The reason I think this is so important, I, I don't know if you or any of your listeners have ever been audited by the IRS. It's a very pleasant experience, as you might imagine. I've been audited. Oh, I bet. And, uh, yeah, you know, they're very nice about it. They send you a nice letter. It's very clear about what it is that they're concerned about. And, um, and you have very uh, cordial and uh, clearly explanatory phone conversations after that. And it gets resolved uh, in a matter of days. And of course, everything I just said is absolute bullshit. It takes a a tremendous amount of time. They try to intimidate you. They are horrible communicators. And uh, part of what you need to do is wait them out because they are typically wrong and not very smart. (laughs) It's a horrible process. The big problem is that you don't have any power in that relationship. Right. The IRS is a ridiculously powerful law enforcement agency with broad powers. They have their own court system in which they are granted enormous deference. And you do not want to be in that situation. On the other hand, states have a very different relationship with the federal government. 
and would be in a much better place to negotiate on, on behalf of their constituents. And that's the relationship that you want. Uh, the federal government wants a direct rela relationship with individuals because they can intimidate you into, into paying. Oh, yeah. It's a horrible, horrible uh, situation in my view. So uh, the perfect situation, ultimately, what we, what we want to get to is for a state to have the option of saying, we will fund you, you will send us a bill, talking to the federal government, you will send us a bill once a year for our share of national defense, and that's it. And, you know, the rest of your interests, none of our business, you can go pound sand. We're not funding the rest of it. That's the ultimate goal. That's the relationship that we want to get to and is much more like what the founding fathers intended than this monstrosity that has been developed over the past couple of hundred years. Oh, yeah. And, you know, accomplishing something like that is going to be a hell of a task. I mean, we were talking about just, you know, how how crazy your your presidential campaign is going to be, but like having to pass a constitutional amendment to get, you know, the gold new deal. Yeah. In effect. I mean, that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole separate battle. You're going to have to fight there. It's a whole separate battle. It's a big deal. We'll see how the next couple of years go. And then we'll see how the next couple of years go after that. Right. I right. do believe that in the next, uh, two, six, 10 years, 14, I would, I would say in the next 10, 14, certainly the next 18 years, we will elect a president who is either a capital L libertarian, or at the very least a lowercase L libertarian. I believe oh, wow. that that will happen. I do not, uh, that does not mean I'm very optimistic about the way this is going to play out. I believe that the reason we have such an opportunity and indeed such an obligation to participate in this process is because things are going so badly and likely to get much worse before they get better. And as things get worse, it'll, it'll develop certain opportunities for us that don't yet exist. And, and that's why I believe that that will happen, but I'm not trying to paint a rosy and very optimistic <laughs> picture. I'm saying that things are going to get so bad that eventually we will have a, a libertarian resurgence that is is starting now. Yeah, one one uh <laughs> one thing that I've learned from talking to as many libertarian candidates as I have is that uh, they are not optimists. You know, they <laughs> they they often do paint a pretty uh pretty depressing picture of of what's to come and rightfully so, you know. Yeah. Um yeah, it's rough. I mean, we can be optimistic about eventually playing an important role. And of course, you have to be a bit of an optimist to be running, to be engaged, to believe that you can make a difference, even to believe that you can get your message out, to believe that people are listening, right. to know that your ideas are what can actually make America a better place. It, all of that requires some optimism. But you have to appreciate the fact that uh, a lot of our opportunity grows out of the fact that at the certainly at the federal level, and I would argue at uh, lower levels as well, the way government works in this country is not the way it was intended and, and no longer largely in the public interest. Right. Have you, um, I, you know, I know it's early in the campaign and everything like that, but have you had the opportunity to talk to like voters about the gold new deal? Or I'm, re I'm real curious to see what the response has been like from people that you've talked to, you know, yeah. about what you're proposing. Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, we have, um, you know, 
gone out of our way to to reach some people who are outside of the Libertarian Party. Um, and I can tell you that there is a lot of explanatory work to be done in this arena. Mm-hmm. I believe that uh, it's very likely the only way we can succeed in this is through political campaigning. I do not believe that this can be accomplished outside of running for offices. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. You, you have to get people's attention. Uh, it's, it's very, uh, it's hard. I mean, there are ways to make it easier than, than, than otherwise. There are techniques that are worth pursuing, uh, both in terms of marketing and advertising and campaigning. Uh, but I am convinced that the only way to succeed in, in getting our ideas any traction is through political campaigns. That has to start with, uh, as I mentioned before, a real fully differentiated uh, presidential campaign. And it's real important. Speaking of receptivity, one of the things that we've also found, and we've conducted a little bit of our own polling on this already, Uh, not inside the Libertarian Party, but outside the Libertarian Party. Mm -hmm. We believe that people, uh, Americans, voters, when they look at the presidential campaigns, they still believe that while it's in part a battle of ideologies, they still believe that the individuals involved matter. Mm -hmm. And so you have to put forth a professional campaign, uh, a well-specified ideology that differentiates you, but you also have to have a candidate that people can look at and say they could at least imagine you being a credible threat to go all the way. You know, people have an expectation of what that looks like a little bit. Uh, Someone who's committed to public service, uh, someone who's been around the block a little bit, these things uh, matter. And if you don't check some of those boxes, your philosophy can be the greatest thing since sliced bread. People aren't giving you the time of day. Right. So we need to be able to make that case uh, as well. All of this, Matt, each each of these is a, a piece of the puzzle that has to be in place. Oh, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think you're really right that the only way to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish is is campaigning, you know, I mean, there might be other ways to maybe plant a seed or, you know, something, maybe get people's attention for a little bit. But I think at the end of the day, running a campaign like you're doing, you know, knocking doors, making phone calls, shaking hands, kissing babies, that kind of stuff. I mean, that, that really is the only way to, to educate people on this and, and win them over. I think you're absolutely right. It's crucial. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing but hard work and, uh, Hopefully the intersection of opportunity and obligation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just we're, we're approaching an hour here and I, I don't want to keep you too long over that, but I, I did want to give you an opportunity here just towards the end to maybe talk about some of the other uh, issues that you're prioritizing in your campaign. I mean, you know, we've covered the gold new deal. You know, we talked about uh, police reform and ending qualified immunity earlier. Are there any other issues that you're considering, you know, real real big key components of your 
your campaign? I think, uh, yeah, thanks for asking. I think uh, underneath the Gold New Deal, we also have uh, a couple of planks on the management of fiscal policy and monetary policy in the United States, because I think people are focused on those as they always are, but even this time to a greater uh, extent and a greater degree than ever. We're facing the possibility of a recession next year. I would argue a probability. Right. Uh, we'll, we'll see. And I think a growing proportion of the American electorate is recognizing that a lot of our economic problems come from bad public policy. Mm. The situation we're in now is not so different than the late 70s and early 80s. But in those days, people had a great deal more blind faith in the institutions of our of our republic, of our government. Right. <laughs> and we can argue round and square whether that was a good idea, right? I would argue that uh, some of our blind faith was was misplaced. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't think the American electorate has changed so much as, as we have had our eyes opened uh, to some of the reasons why some of these institutions are probably not as worthy of our faith as, as we had once believed and, and hoped. Having having said that, I think people are more ready than ever to hear the role that the Federal Reserve plays in trying to do a good job when it uh, comes to controlling monetary policy, but cannot live up to the expectations that are put on the shoulders of the people that run the Fed. It just cannot be, be accomplished as it's structured. I believe that we need to replace Fed monetary policy with a rules-based monetary policy. Mm. I believe that we need to replace the Fed's regulatory authority with a more optional system and that we need to take away the Fed's balance sheet and uh, put it on the Treasury Department where it can be controlled through legislation. So it's not so easy for the Fed to bail out banks or bail out anybody else in the middle of the night willy-nilly. Right. Uh, in other words, those being the three parts of the Federal Reserve System, I would I would end the Fed uh, lock, stock, and barrel. But that's a that's a bit of a tough sell and has to be handled in parts. But I do believe that the American electorate is much more open to hearing this discussion than ever before. I believe the th same thing can be said for fiscal policy. I think people are in greater recognition than ever before that bad fiscal policy hurts. I think people have been able to see the Biden administration sending out checks in an effort to get us through uh, COVID, a policy that turned out to be a, a, a waste of money, inflationary, uh, that did not help things like supply chains, um, that added to our uh, our debt burden, as well as inflation, that was not fair, uh, and that spending money per se is just, you know, as much as it's always been a bad idea, I think more people recognize that to be the case than ever before. I think that the the COVID lockdowns, for example, the vaccine mandates, yes, people now recognize more than more than six months ago, more than twelve months ago, more than eighteen months ago that these were things that. We're in violation of your civil rights. Uh, we're not worth it. We're not a good idea. We're driven by public officials who thought they were a hell of a lot smarter than they actually are, <laughs> uh, who were not in every case as forthcoming 
as they should have been, right? Right. Who took extraordinary measures to to drill a particular message down on the American people uh, at the expense of other voices that would have been beneficial, that overall it was managed with a complete disdain for our civil rights and the way that government should work. I think people now see that and are starting to realize that this and the other forms that authoritarianism takes are all of a, of a bundle. And that's what provides a real opportunity for libertarianism and libertarians. So I'm excited to get out there and, and get the message out. Oh yeah, no, I think you're right. And just speaking of COVID, you know, that blind faith that Americans used to have in their institutions and everything like that, I think post COVID that shit's out the window. You know, like whatever remaining blind yeah. faith people had in in those yeah. institutions, that is for for a, a lot of people, most people, that is gone. I think that that is completely gone, and and that's a good thing. Uh, I think it's a shame that there is so little trust. Uh, I don't think that's the American people's fault. I think that is the fault of the people who abused our faith and trust. Yes. And I think it's a real shame. I'm, I'm not one of those people, you know, I'm not a complete anarchist in the sense that I think it's a, you know, I'm not trying to say it's a good thing that nobody trusts anybody anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want a police force we can trust. Right. I don't think we're there in every case uh, as much as I probably have a greater appreciation for police officers than most people just because of my experience. But I share my skepticism that things are run the way I wish they were. Uh, I wish that we had a monetary policy we could trust, a fiscal policy we could trust. I wish all these things were true and that existed, but they don't and they aren't. And uh, we need to find a way to get back to a world in which we can trust each other a little bit more. But that necessarily means having systems in place like the founding fathers wanted where there are checks and balances, uh, you know, like Ronald Reagan used to say, trust but verify, right? right? Where there's less power in the hands of politicians, so there's less incentive to abuse that trust. There's greater transparency, greater accountability. That's the, the, the directions uh, in which we need to go. Oh, yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, um yeah, just just want to st- kind of start wrapping up here, man. I'm curious, what uh, I mean, what's next for you? What kind of big things do you have uh, planned for your campaign in these next few months, next year? I mean, what yep. what are some big things that you're looking forward We're to? We're going to the conventions. Uh, yes. We're lined up in a dozen conventions in the spring already, and a dozen more we're lining up. So we're going to have a bit of a road show. Uh, I look forward to speaking to those uh, state libertarian parties. Uh, in, in some cases, it's a Friday here, a Saturday there, and a Sunday someplace else. <laughs> so it requires a little bit of uh, travel budget and vitamin B. But, uh, you know, getting out and meeting libertarians and talking to delegates about the ideas that we have, it's, it's what it's all about. And it, it provides its own energy. You know, the energy that you need is met with the energy provided by 
working with uh, such such great folks who want the same things as you do and want to hear your ideas. So that's what the spring is going to be all about. As I said, we're onboarding some people to work on the campaign. So that's exciting. Uh, we'll be rolling out a fundraising uh, program in the spring. We haven't asked anyone for a nickel yet, uh, but <laughs> but we know that we need to, to do some of that. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll be uh, getting more involved with uh, public relations and media and the, the blocking and tackling of the campaign, but it will all revolve around this idea that we need a, a new relationship with our government. We need a gold new deal. We need to run a professional and credible campaign, and we need to do all of that in a way that differentiates us from the political duopoly in place today. Oh man, I'm excited. I'm excited for you, man. I can't wait to see just what, what the campaign has in store and you know, what, um, I don't, just what all of that is going to look like. I, I absolutely cannot wait. And if other, other people are like me and they, they want to keep up with you and everything like that, where can they find you? Throw out some social media handles, website, everything like that. Well, uh, yeah, go to go to Twitter and you can follow. Uh, uh, it's at uh, Termot Mike. You'd have to spell Termot right, which might be a challenge. T-E-R-M-A-A-T. Uh, but mm-hmm. You could probably just search Mike Termot and get in the right place. Uh, we do have three websites up, um, two of which I'll plug now. The third one might not be quite ready for prime time. Uh, you can go to MikeTermott.com and GoldNewDeal.org. GoldNewDeal.org. It's not GoldNewDeal.com. You can go to GoldNewDeal.com if you want, but they'll try to sell you something. <laughs> Which is not, I, I, and I'm not saying it's a bad idea to buy gold, right? Uh, right. That's probably not a bad idea, but... Uh, but that's not what we're about. We're at goldnewdeal.org, but you can read about the campaign, see the videos, uh, see the positions at uh, miketremont.com. Yeah. Would, would highly recommend people follow you on Twitter and, and everywhere else, man. And by the way, uh, that's my real phone number in all of these places. Oh, really? Yes. That's, that's the real deal. That's the phone I carry in my pocket couple of people have called. I don't know what they were expecting, but when I say hello, they're like, who's this? <laughs> and I'm like, it's Mike. Who's this? And they're like, well, I called because I got the number on your website. I'm like, okay, well, who'd you think you were calling, right? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, not some and, staffer or anyone like that. It's you. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, people on our team have asked me, you know, shouldn't that number go someplace else or shouldn't uh, – you know, one of the other guys answer it or something. I'm like, how is that going to help me? If someone else answers it, they're going to end up texting me, say, you know, saying, call this guy back. I mean, either way, I'm going to end up calling and talking to whoever it is that calls. So I think that that my approach is much more streamlined. Oh, it definitely is. Yeah. I mean, who, who better to talk to, you you know, than you about your campaign? Yeah. uh, Well, that's, that's my attitude. Uh, And I, I think so far it's been a lot of fun. I enjoy it. Um, if someone wants to text me, uh, I can call them back at a convenient time. But outside of that, you call that number, baby. Uh, you're talking to the real deal. So <laughs> if if you hate my guts, uh, have your insult ready to go. And if you have a question, be ready to ask it because I'm answering. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll have to deal with plenty of that uh, (laughs) over these next however many months. Um, 
But Mike, thanks for coming on the show, man. I, I really do appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you. And uh, if I do decide to run for office in the future, you'll be the first guy that I call. I doubt I'll be the first. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, when, I'll call you. I'll call you sometime. When you decide, <laughs> you will call me. It's right. The number will be on the website. Yeah, so I already have it. You don't know how. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, you will call uh... and you'll say, I must have eaten something bad because my gut's telling me that I should run for office. What do you think? And I'll, I'll say, I'm flying out tomorrow. We'll discuss it at lunch. <laughs> Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll have to wait and see what the future has in store for both of us then. <laughs> well, that's right. As Humphrey Bogart said in uh, Casablanca, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. It's a great quote to end it on. Mike, thanks for coming <laughs> on the show, man. I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you. You take care. You too. Hey, everyone. Taylor here, and thanks for listening to the Bonfire Briefing Podcast. My guest today is Tommy Brown III, and he's running for Washington County Commissioner in Indiana as a Libertarian. We wanted to do this episode for weeks, or maybe even months at this point, and boy am I glad we got it done. We talked about his campaign, how he got into politics, fiscal issues facing Washington County, cybersecurity, education, protecting kids, and more. It was a great conversation. I know I had a really good time, and I can't wait to sit down with Tommy again before the election in November, which we definitely will do. Thanks for listening and hope you guys enjoy. All right, we're good. Tommy Brown, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, man. I really appreciate you picking me up. Uh, you know, it, it's like I told my last podcast host you know we've been trying to do this for about two weeks and every time we thought we got close we hit a roadblock but uh, tonight's the night so let's do her buddy yeah tonight is the night man yeah no I you know I, I usually record on weekends and I, I I think I remember you saying that during the week was usually good for you and you know then you hit me back up and I mean just so happened you know I've got some free time you know these next couple of evenings so I mean I wanted to get you on because you know you would you know, I, I had seen that you had liked some stuff from the podcast in the past. And, you know, it's uh, it's pretty cool to, you know, to talk to someone who's actually listened to my podcast before. Uh, you know, I don't know. I've never asked anyone about it, but I, but no, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. And I actually, um, it's really cool to talk to you specifically, because in my previous two episodes, I talked with, uh, with Dan Berman, you know, Dan Taxationist, Steph Berman, and, uh, Marco Battaglia, who's running up for a lieutenant governor in Iowa. And right. in both of those conversations, you know, like a really big focal point of our discussion was just how important it was to, you know, run for uh, state, local, county level seats and to return the power, uh, you know, to people in, in those kinds of positions. So, uh, it's it's pretty interesting to be talking to someone who is looking to do exactly that. You're running for a county commissioner in Washington County, Indiana, and uh, I want you to just tell me a little bit about that, man. How um, how's the campaign been going for you so far? How's you know how's life as a candidate? I mean, what's the what's the whole experience been like for you up to this point? Well, I'm gonna be honest with you, man. Th this campaign has been 
absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the the reaction we're getting has been really, really upbeat. Uh, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate. Uh, this campaign alone, if you count this podcast with you, I have been on 13 podcasts just for this campaign. Wow. You know, the, and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's almost like it's, it's not real at times. It's almost like it's a dream. You know, when, when I started this, this campaign was in its infancy, the night of the results of the 2018 election. Uh, I was sitting at the results and I, I knew we wasn't going to win that night. And I was in the back of my head, I was thinking, okay, that's my target. That's my target. And I told my camp, I told a friend of mine that was sitting right next to me, I was like, that's my target. And I said, I want you as my campaign manager. Three weeks later, he calls me back. He goes, you got me. Let's do this. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. What, uh, what, what did you run for in 2018? I actually ran for county council uh, as a libertarian in 2018. Ran against a guy that uh, has been a lifelong family friend. Uh, oh, wow. Ben Bowling, uh, ben Bowling has known me since I was little. And I will tell you straight up that that was probably one of the cleanest races that has ever been ran in Washington County. We did not cut into each other. We did not cut each other down. We stayed on the topics. We stayed on the facts. And I can tell you that was one of the funnest races I've ever been in. Oh, I can imagine it was. What was the what what was the thing that that caused you to to run against him? Just basically, it was a strong disagreement in policy and ideology. Mm-hmm. Once I got into the race, you know, th- there was just some things going on. In 2018, Washington County got a state mandate that they had to build a new jail, mm-hmm. which at the time, I still don't agree with it. I didn't agree with it then because there's other ways to do stuff. You know, let's let, let, let's try home incarceration. You know, let, let's let's reduce the number of marijuana arrests. You know, there, there's things you can do to, to depopulate your jail. Right. Well, I went to the public meeting where they had the proposal to raise property taxes. The. The bold-faced lie that is now evident here in 2022, but it wasn't evident there, uh, was that, oh, don't worry about it. The jail will pay for itself. Well, it's, you know, county government is is not living up to what they said they was going to do. My opponent this time, who is current county commissioner, stated that night at the 2018 public meeting that, you know, we don't want dialogue with you. We're allowing you to to voice your public opinion, but we're not going to answer any questions. And I'm sitting mm-hmm. there and I went up for my public comments that night and I asked them, I was like, have any of you went out in your districts and talked to the people about what you're getting ready to do? Now, I had already been told they wasn't taking questions, right. but, you know, I wanted to throw it back at them because if you go to the founding documents, 
Taxation without representation is null and void. That property tax increase did not have any representation behind it. Yeah, no, and that's um. Well, what was the what what was the end result of all that? They got the property tax increase passed, and I'm I'm guessing that that didn't. I mean, did that pay for the new jail or? Are y'all no. still, de- yeah, y'all still dealing with that, I bet. We are a community, we are a county of a little over 28,000 people. Mm-hmm. We have a property tax-based bond debt of over $16.8 million. Whoa. We've got poverty rates that are above the state of Indiana levels. Right now, adult poverty level is up from uh, 12.1 to 13.4 and the 18 and under poverty rate. Now this is kids is up from 17.7 to 18.0. And I have heard through some really reliable sources that it might be a little bit higher than 18%. Mm. Uh, they originally had told us that they was going to rent the beds out, bring in prisoners from outside the county that would pay for it. They're not renting the beds out. Now, that's really not in my spectrum for my race. I'm more concerned with the debt and how we deal with that debt going forward. There is a proposed budget on the table right now for 2023 for Washington County. They're asking for 11 Point nine million dollars, and the only increase that I've heard reported that I agree with is for our EMS director. Right. Yeah. No. That's um. <clears throat> no. I mean that that. Well, what 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 did you say the current debt was there again? Just so I can. The the prote- bond the yeah. bond debt alone is over 16.8 million dollars that's insane <laughs> now, mean, that, when you, how does that happen i mean i'm just that that's that's ridiculously high i mean how do you even how do you even get to that point well it's unfortunately my opponent is a strong believer in the 1980s practice of tax and spend uh, I, I've, I've said it many times. I'm going to continue to say it until somebody proves me wrong. Uh, they don't know how to manage their money. What they done is they took a large scale project and they budget, they, they finance part of it at 0% interest which right there, you know, that immediately, if if you're any kind of person that studies economics, that right there for me sent red flags off like crazy. When I started digging, these bonds are absolutely backloaded with interest. And I'm talking interest rates of over 3%. Um, 3% on $16 million. uh, We're going to be paying for this jail upwards of into 2039 and the yeah. interest rate on those bonds is going to be anywhere between 3.38 and 3.50. I mean, that's, that, that's absurd. 
so I mean, how do they? So I mean, how do they justify wanting a eleven point nine million dollar budget that they're proposing now? I mean, how do they? How do they even justify asking for that much money in their budget when they've misappropriated <laughs> so many funds and and racked up all this debt? I mean, how how do they even attempt to justify? Well, what what they would tell you is is we don't have to go to the public for nothing. You elected us as our representatives and we are doing what we see fit for the county. My response to that is, I hate to use this word, but you know, I seen it earlier today in the Constitution Party's Facebook page. Mm-hmm. When, when, when a government decides that they can plunder their people, and get away with it. That's exactly what's going to happen. Um, most of that money will come from uh, the state of Indiana. The Indianapolis will have to approve the budget. Mm-hmm. I have lo- I've glanced at the budget a, a time or two. Uh, the article in the paper today, uh, the the local Salem paper. That's where I found out about the uh, pay increase for the EMS director. Uh, it's it's fairly reasonable because now in the state of Indiana, thanks to some law changes, um, there's going to be certain people within EMS that are going to have to file with the DEA because of uh, narcotics. Uh, that that goes back to to the clamp down on narcotics and that kind of stuff, which is is kind of out of my realm. But you know that pay increase i agree with you know we're we're dealing with higher fuel costs most of the dump trucks and stuff that the county uses all run on diesel you know so you're going to have fewer uh, higher fuel costs but even with a $10,000 raise for the EMS director and a little bit higher fuel costs uh i would i would venture to say there's probably probably some budget padding going on right oh yeah no that's that's definitely not hard to imagine um yeah yeah that would would not be a stretch at all i i was wondering if you could tell me um a little bit more you know kind of broadly about washington county because i you know i've never been you know i i you know i googled it here but you know before we started talking but i mean you've you've are, are you from there, like born and raised, or? Yeah, I was. Uh, I was born here in Washington County. We are, uh, like I said, we're about we're a little over twenty eight thousand people. Uh, we uh, we're situated about forty miles north of Louisville, Kentucky, and oh, okay. we're situated uh, about ninety miles south of Indianapolis. Uh, we're twenty miles, or actually, let me rephrase that: we're seventeen miles. From I-65, which runs through Scottsburg, Indiana, to the east of us, we're we've got some manufacturing in the county. We've lost quite a bit of manufacturing. Most, uh, you know, there there's quite a few small businesses. Uh, agriculture is really big in, in in Washington County. We have a lot of farmers in in, in the county. And, you know, that those are the ones probably out of all of them that I worry about the most because 
unfortunately, my opponent has no insight and he has no foresight on how to reinvest back into the county. You know, uh, hopefully here in a few minutes, we can get into the, the, the economic policies that I have set forth. But, you know, that's kind of a, of a, of a basic rundown. Uh, for any basketball fans that listen to your podcast, got a little trivia for you you'll be interested in. Ooh, all right. Uh, one of the uh, coach, one of the head coaches for the university uh, or UCLA, Mr. Everett Dean, uh, was actually born and raised here in Washington County in Salem, Indiana. Uh, so, for any any basketball buffs that uh, that know basketball, that name should should resonate. Uh, yeah, Everett Dean is was born and raised right here in Washington County. Uh, we've uh, you know we're we're roughly about forty miles. Uh, away from uh, Indiana University. So, uh, you know, we, we've got some history. We, uh, matter of fact, Abraham Lincoln uh, had one of our uh, community members uh, appointed to his staff, uh, Mr. John Hay. Uh, he served in Lincoln's uh, cabinet when Lincoln was president. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. The, um, the, uh, yeah, no, the, the basketball one, I think will definitely, uh, that's a good one. The name rung a bell in my head. I couldn't quite place why, but that's, that's pretty cool that he's from there. Um, yes, it is. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's, uh, let, let's talk about some of those issues. Cause we, we talked, you know, very briefly before we started about, you know, some of the top issues for you um, in this campaign, but if you could just, just, you know, just tell me what are some of the issues that you're focusing on in your campaign? You know, what are voters telling you about? Okay. Well, the first one and probably the most important one, I have been following cybersecurity since uh, 2016 with John McAfee. Mm -hmm. John was a uh, w w was a huge inspiration to me. And when in 2016, when he ran for president, when he announced that we was in a, we was already in a cyber war, that kind of got my wheels spinning. Well, I started researching it, and it's absolutely insane of how much of your daily life is consumed by cyber threats mm -hmm. uh, you know and in in my campaign here for county commissioner i've stated it uh, uh, several times that washington county needs a county commissioner in office one that understands cybersecurity but two can bring forth a policy, which I have wrote myself, that will not only protect county infrastructure and county businesses, but will also protect the citizens of Washington County. And alongside that, will educate them. Now, I'm not talking about forced indoctrination or, or anything like that or government-controlled education. Right. I'm talking about a county commissioner that is on social media daily, that has a social media presence that is willing to share information that will benefit people and keep them safe online. My number one goal is to, to keep our children in Washington County safe from online threats. Our kids are vulnerable. And it's not just here in Washington County. That's nationwide. If you go to my Twitter page, which is at Tommy Brown the third number one, you will see a lot of the cybersecurity I follow is based around keeping kids safe. 
Um, so that's that's the cyber side of it. We've got to defend our county. Now, if you talk to my opponent about this, he will tell you that can't happen in Washington County. Our border will protect us from that. Huh. Yeah, that's uh, that's not a very satisfactory answer. <laughs> I will say, golly, I mean, that's that's all he can muster up in in response to questions about this. Well, okay, when when you are what I would consider the dominant party in the county, um, I guess you can be a little smug. Um, you know, I, 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 I guess that's how you act. But, you know, to me, that's wrong. Um, that's another reason why I'm running is to change the atmosphere within the county commissioner's seat we have, I've got video proof posted on my Facebook campaign page of my opponent using bullying tactics, uh, literally snapping at other elected officials. And I'm sitting here thinking, wait a minute, you are an elected official of Washington County. The people trusted you to be the high ranking commissioner and you're going to go down to the bottom of the road and use bullying tactics uh, to, to get something done. Um, I'm sorry. That's, that's not, that is not how our founding fathers seen elected officials. You're supposed to be a public servant and you're supposed to be a statesman. Right. Yeah, no. And it just, I mean, it, it, it yeah, it, it sounds like he thinks he's, above all of that for some strange reason, which is why I, you know, I think it is so good that you're out, you know, on social media all the time. I mean, I, I, I see your tweets all the time. I can't, you know, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like for people that, you know, you know, live in Washington County and are following your campaign, you know, closer. I mean, you're definitely doing a good job of, you know, staying active and putting good information out there. Um, I mean, that would that that would be a great change of pace, uh, you know, compared to your opponent or even, you know, the rest of the county commissioners that, you know, from what it sounds like, won't even talk to people, take questions from people. That's insane. Well, here's what probably bothers me more than anything is we have a lot of during the summertime we can have if severe weather hits, it sometimes can be pretty pretty intense. Mm -hmm. uh, my opponent re absolutely will not post any severe weather information, nothing on public safety. And I, you know, maybe it's my background. I spent 20 some 20 plus years uh, serving uh, both in Washington County and in Lawrence County, Indiana for emergency management. Maybe it's my background. I, I have a heart for public safety. I want to make sure people are safe and for an elected official to literally just slough it off and think, well, okay, they can fend for themselves. I'm going to stay home and do what I want. That's no, that, that, that's not being a public servant. I'm sorry. You know, somebody, somebody will probably argue with that fact, but if you can't take two minutes out of your evening and share from the National Weather Service that your county is under a tornado warning, 
Um, why are you serving the people? Right. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. What, uh, did you say it was emergency management you worked in? Yes, I was. Uh, I started in uh, 1997, and I stepped down uh, January of this year, uh, or no, January of yeah, January of, of 2022, and I had close to 25 years in emergency management, and I learned a lot. When, when I was there, that's that's probably why I'm so adamant about that is because I spent 25 years doing it. Um, again, you know, public safety has to be a high priority, especially when you are an elected, supposedly an elected public servant. Right. And, you know, you you know, you, you talk a lot about um, public safety. And, and you mentioned it was cybersecurity too. I, I want to touch back on that just for a second. Cause, uh, cause I, cause I'm not a, you know, I'm not a cybersecurity expert. Um, but I, I was wondering, you know, could you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the issues that, um, you know, that are facing Washington County or, you know, something like that, as far as cybersecurity is concerned and like, you know, what threat that poses to people that live in the County, especially kids. Okay. Um, Let's let us let us start with with business and and go and go from there. Mm-hmm. Every business that's online, and and to some point even even citizens, right now there is there's two threats out there that are legitimate, and they can literally bankrupt a business, an individual, or a small county. The first one is ransomware. That is where they put a ransom against all of your computer information. The average cost of a ransomware attack right now, as of about two weeks ago, is over $640,000. Holy shit. That's a, good, that, that's a good reaction to that. That's probably one of the most controlled reactions I've heard. <laughs> um, so when you take and you put that in perspective, so if a small county gets hit with a ransomware they don't and you know you're going to hear arguments either way do you pay the money do you not pay the money right my thought is is let's get a policy together let's help the businesses the doctor's offices the hospital the individual and the kids let's make sure that you know there's there's steps in place to keep them as safe as we can. Now, are we going to stop it completely? The honest answer to that is no. But having a policy in place and working with state and local officials to bring that to fruition is going to be a lot better than what we are doing now. I will say that I have to give our governor, Mr. Eric Holcomb, Mm -hmm. i got to pat him on the back a little bit. Uh, earlier in 2021, I do believe it might've been even this year, uh, Indiana national guard activated a cyber unit, uh, for the Indiana national guard. Should I be elected to commissioner? I want to contact the commander of the Washington County unit here in, in our County. And I want to work with them, kind of give them a little extra practice, uh, bolster them a little bit, get them out there in the news media, but at the same time, add another layer of security 
for Washington County and the people of Washington County by saying, hey, look, your local guard unit is helping your county commissioner defend you and educate you. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the education is is crucial, I feel like. I mean, if you can't, if you, I mean, if you have elected officials that are not educated on cybersecurity, how could they even begin to to craft policy that would defend their constituents? They they can't. No, you're absolutely right. You you can't. Now the other threat that is out there, it's uh it's fairly new. Uh it came out last late last year. It's called extortionware. Mm. And this one kind of scares me a little bit. Uh, you get hackers that dig up dirt or make it up, either one, um, and they basically extort money from you or else they release the information. Now, it same thing, same rule applies that applies to ransomware. The money is no guarantee. Even if you pay the money, they could still do it. Right. Now, when I was on... Uh, Tim O'Connor's podcast Saturday, he's like, you know what? He goes, some of the dirt that's come out on these elected officials, it doesn't seem to hurt them. I think I'd welcome it. It would make me more popular. I'm like, Tim, you really (laughs) don't want to do that, brother. uh, You know, and okay. So, so we've covered that now. Now let's focus on the kids. So look how often kids are online. Just when they're at home, just when they're at home, oh, we're yeah. getting ready. To, we, we are getting ready to start another school year. What guarantee does parents have that the schools are up to speed on cybersecurity? Yeah, I know they've got things in place. Okay, that's great. But I've always been taught when you stop learning, you stop living. <laughs> and I cannot as a one, as a human being two as a legitimate political candidate, I cannot sit back and say, Oh, well, you know, kids will be kids. You know, you got to let them learn. No, it, the kids are our future. And if, if they are terrorized on uh, in the cyber world, And, you know, we might as well face it. Cyber is going to be the future. It already is here. There's not anything you hardly do that you're not touched by cyber. Um, You know, we've got to start educating them at a young age. I'm thinking, you know, if we can get the schools to do it, I'm thinking starting like third or fourth grade and increase that that curriculum as they progress. My ultimate goal is to have one senior class while I'm in office work with me hand in hand to help defend the county. Now, you if you tell me that's absurd, I'll believe it. But I think that would be a really uh, a real big feather in the cap for any senior class. Um, and it would be a pat on the back to the future of Washington County. And it would give the youth a feeling of belonging. Yeah. Oh yeah. I I think you're absolutely right. And uh, I, you know, I like how you're thinking about, you know, incorporating it into the, the curriculum, you know, when they're younger, Uh, they always said that about foreign language, right? Like it's easier to, it's easier for a kid to learn foreign language if, 
you know, you started a little earlier. I think the same is probably true about cybersecurity. You know, you, you start teaching them this stuff when they're young and, you know, they'll, they'll know what to look out for and how to stay safe. And I mean, you know, like you said, it would just be a, I mean, a great overall skill for them to have. Um, we, we actually got hit with the, with the zoom timer, uh, a couple of minutes back. We've got about six minutes left before it, uh, closes out on us. I, I wanted to give you the last couple of minutes because you mentioned it, economic policy. Um, you know, it, it might, it might have to be an abbreviated version of what, what you might give, but could you, could you talk to us a little bit about, you know, some of the economic policies that, that you're thinking about? And, um, okay. Um, yeah. r- just real quick. We have got to invest in jobs of tomorrow. We've got to build up our small business. As Ross Perot said in 1992, it's really simple, guys. You grow your job base. It grows your tax base. That's more revenue in the kitty. And that rele- that releases some of that pressure to raise taxes. We've got to also make positive effect upon our farmers and our agriculture. And we've got to start to think about moving to what I call an eco economy. We've got to be more ecological uh, aware. Uh, there, there's a lot of good things out there that are coming. You know, solar is a really good renewable energy. Uh, hydrogen fuel is the future. And, you know, this country needs to revert back to what got it started by growing hemp. So that's kind of a really blunt overview of the uh, economic policies. But uh, if anybody contacts me via Twitter, via Facebook, I'll be glad to explain it to them in full. Yeah, man, I've uh, I've really appreciated our conversation. I, I think uh, we might have to do it again. Felt like we were just scratching the surface on some stuff. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I, I knew from, you know, when we were talking before, I, I knew it'd be a good episode, man. Just, you know, in the final mo- uh, minutes here, just want to give you an opportunity, you know, let people know when your election is, um, how they can vote, any other stuff you want to plug, a website, your Twitter handle, anything like that. Just go ahead and throw it all out there. All right, guys, the election is November 8th, 2022. I need thousands of you to show up and vote here in Washington County. You can check my campaign out on Twitter at Tommy Brown, the third number one. Or if you're on Facebook, just simply type in Tommy Brown, the third for County Commissioner District 2 2022. It's a public group. Feel free to join. I need support and I always need help. And uh, man, I appreciate you having me on tonight. This has been a blast and uh, we're definitely going to have to do this again before November. Hey, I'm game. Let's do it. Uh, Tommy Brown, thanks for coming on the show, man. I've, I've loved it. It's been awesome. All right. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, buddy. All right. See ya. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. That was my conversation with Washington County Commissioner Candidate Tommy Brown III. I had a great time, and I'm glad Tommy enjoyed being on the show, too. This is definitely an episode we're going to have to run back at some point before the election in November. We talked about so many different issues facing Washington County, a place that I admittedly was completely unfamiliar with beforehand. I'm wishing Tommy the best of luck on the campaign trail, and if you live in his district, which is District 2 in Washington County, Indiana, be sure to vote for Tommy Brown III. You can check him out on Twitter at TommyBrownIII3 and uh, learn more about him. Speaking of Twitter, if you enjoyed that episode, be sure to follow at Bonfire Brief Pod so you don't miss future episodes like this one. Thanks for watching.